It's a recognizable building along Greenville's main street between the Poinsett Hotel and City Hall. You may have walked past the old Greenville County Courthouse and not known the history it holds. Back in 1947, 31 white men were put on trial here, accused of lynching a black man. Willie Earl was brutally beaten and shot to death 74 years ago today. His death was the last recorded lynching in South Carolina. On February 15, 1947, a cab driver by the name of Thomas Brown was attacked and later died. Willie Earl was believed to be Brown's last passenger, and he was arrested the next day, but never stood trial. At the jail, Earl denied that he was Brown's attacker, but since it was Sunday's, uh, officers postponed questioning him. Dr. William Gravely is the author of They Stole Him Out of Jail. He grew up in Pickens County and was in second grade at the time Earl was murdered. 18 hours after his booking, a mob of more than 30 men, mostly Brown's cohorts, abducted Earl and drove him about 20 miles to a spot just inside Greenville County. There about daybreak, they beat and cut and then shot him. Some perpetrators remembered his last words, Lord, you done kill me. Earl's lynching was on February 17, 1947. Greenville poet and teaching artist Glennis Redmond has focused on Earl's life and death through her poetry. As a woman and an artist and a poet and a teaching artist, I said, let me just unpack, let me dig a little deeper. And uh, my latest book is What My Hands Say, and I wrote this poem, it's a really short poem, and it was after talking to my mother, and um, it is called Nature Lesson, and this sums it up. 1947, at age 11, my mama learned how a rope turns into more than just a rope. Looped around a branch where a tree becomes more than just a tree, where memory twists around more than just a mind like Willie Earl's neck and my mama's young heart. In Greenville, South Carolina, mama sees how memory hangs on each and every limb. The 31 men who were tried for Earl's lynching were all acquitted, and the case got national and international attention in publications like The New Yorker. There are historical markers where Earl was killed and here where the trial was held. Redmond believes that if we talk openly and regularly about the hard parts of our history, we'll begin to heal it. And I think Greenville, we have, it's a jewel. South Carolina is a jewel. And I love South Carolina enough to take it to task and love it. And that's what we have to do. We have to take our history to task. I'm Lauren Thomas for the city of Greenville anthropomorphizing I think he got it correct the pronunciation so that is anthropomorphizing when you attribute human-like characteristics to an inanimate object so saying that we have to take South Carolina to task that is anthropomorphizing that's what I talk about when I say, hey, we have to stop uh, being ambiguous and the metaphors and what have you and being direct about who is responsible for these problems, even if we are being dishonest and obfuscating about the history of things like the lynching of Willie Earl, 
that would be racist man, racist woman who we have to take to task, whatever that means in terms of someone is responsible for why we don't know about Willie Earl or why Willie Earl was killed in the first place, lynched. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, April 14, 2022. So I have been told this is our book club session number five. S.E. May Washington Williams, dear senator, we're picking up in the middle of chapter five. So we left off. Uh, Mr. J. Strom Thurmond had just become governor of South Carolina and Essie May uh, said, you know, forget this nursing thing. It's just a lot of racism, medical apartheid up here at the Harlem Hospital. Uh, I think I would be better suited uh, to go into education. Uh, and Strom Thurmond does some slick talk with his words, meeting her in New York. And so now she's going to go to South Carolina State College, now South Carolina State University in Orangeburg. That's where we left off at last week. Uh, the audio segment this week, the lynching of Willie Earl. That's going to be one of the significant events that she talks about this week. I just want that emphasized. I've been saying the whole time, like, wow, this book. I mean, hey, I've seen it classified in mixed race studies. Oh, gag confusion. I've seen this also classified as a memoir, which it totally should be classified as South Carolina state history. Totally accurate. Uh, it also could be classified black Miss Andre. I mean, <laughs> this is Miss Essie May's story. Absolutely. But I mean, this is the second lynching of a black male. That's going to be a major life event for Miss Essie May. And she's not even 25 yet. That's what I mean. And I was thinking this book could be classified or listed under Black Miss Andrew just for the uh, numbers of times that she talks about down and out black males. We don't even have to the lynchings. I mean, hey, that should be front and center. But the numbers of times where it's over and over and over all these piles of unemployed and uh, substance abusing, unsheltered black males all over not just in South Carolina throughout why would that be the case hmm and then the lynchings you know all the way through Zachariah Walker and this week Willie Earl now I said our narrator in South Florida been doing a phenomenal job I'm so thankful uh, and I think it's a lot better just so you don't have to hear old no count Gusty reading but to actually have a female voice reading Miss Essie May's story what that also did was give Gusty more free time as I said to research because there's so many there are entire books written about the lynching of Zachariah Walker there are entire books written about the lynching of Willie Earl one of the authors was a guest on the cows uh, William Willimon way back in 2017 go back in the archives and check that one out but there's so much material and there are many many books on J. Strom Thurmond so I hope you know some of the supplementary material that I have been trying to include as we've been reading I hope that that has been constructive for folks who've been following us in the book club uh, so I'm starting off uh, this week with uh, additional input this is from 
Ole Strom, the unauthorized biography of J. Strom Thurmond uh, by Jack Bass and Marilyn W. Thompson. These are both uh, individuals classified as white. Uh, Marilyn W. Thompson was uh, a journalist and she covered Strom Thurmond for decades. So she had lots of material to pull from in putting this book together. Uh, there is an entire chapter. The reason that I'm including this now is because last week or, or really a few times we've had Miss Essie Mae talking about uh, whether her father and Carrie Butler, her mother, had some sort of romance and that was his true love and he got to see her a lot and it's a shame that they couldn't be together. <sighs> I'm just going to go to Strom Thurm's uh, unauthorized autobiography, Old Strom. So chapter six is titled Sue Logue, L-O-G-U-E. This is 1940. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, which is not super, super long, uh, but I do want to give you some important points from it. Before I read uh, this story, which does include J. Strom Thurman in a very important manner, you'll hear. But this story, I mean, we were supposed to read All God's Children uh, by Fox Butterfield like years ago, back when we were supposed to read The Man in the High Castle. We should probably go ahead and read that this year because that book is all about the history of primarily white violence in the state of South Carolina and how that violence spreads across generations and even onto the victims of white supremacy. Um, Willie basket basket. Uh, we'll all God's children have to check that out later. Anyway, uh, part of that violence is covered in this chapter, chapter six, Sue Logue. So apparently 1940 South Carolina, autumn late or early autumn September uh, two white men had a dispute about a calf I kid you not a calf C-A-L-F they have this argument and J. Wallace Logue and Davis W. Timmerman they have this brawl I kid you not J. Wallace Logue allegedly grabs an axe and throws it <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Timmerman, Mr. Timmerman, I guess spry. He knows white violence in South Carolina. He moves to the side, pulls out his pistol, bam, kills Jay Wallace Logue on the spot, shoots him in the head. Okay, so Mr. Logue's widow, Sue Logue, chapter title, she and her brother-in-law, George Logue, they immediately, we are going to kill Mr. Timmerman, immediately. They go to police officer Joe Frank, not to seek justice, but they go to Joe Frank. All of these are white people. They go to Joe Frank and say, hey, we're going to kill Mr. Timmerman. Help us get this plan together. Joe Frank doesn't immediately turn them into his superiors. He doesn't round up a posse. They don't go lynch them. <laughs> Joe Frank helps them find Clarence Bagwell, who agrees to kill Mr. Timmerman for $500. You can do the inflation calculator and see how much money that is, 2022. So he gets his gun, bam, goes and kills Mr. Timmerman. Eventually, Mr. Bagwell, alcohol sobriety would be best. Mr. Bagwell uh, gets drunk and has some sort of drunken dispute with his white wife. 
in retaliation, his white wife goes and thinks him out to the enforcement officers and tells them that he committed this murder, although she doesn't know the identity of who he killed. So they take that bit of information, put two and two together. Bang. OK, so they go arrest Mr. Bagwell and then they go to arrest Sue Lodge, Logue, sorry, and George Logue for conspiring, contracting to do all this. And Joe Frank, the police officer. So they go to arrest Sue and George Logue. Do they turn themselves over like good white people say, we're, you know, you, you got us our bad. We'll do right. No, <laughs> we have a gun battle erupts. They end up killing two white enforcement officers. Uh, some of their party, the Logue party gets killed as well. I think this happened on a Sunday morning too. like. <sighs> so what does all this have to do with Strom Thurmond? Let's cut to the book. Uh, let's see. Word spread quickly. Yep, this is on a Sunday. Word spread in terms of the gun battle where the police officers get killed trying to arrest these conspiring white killers. Word spread quickly in Edgefield as church was letting out. By early afternoon, several hundred people had converged around the Logue house. Many were armed, including a few Logue family friends who went inside as reinforcements. The Logues threatened that anyone who came in after them would be killed. There are several versions of what happened next. One is that Judge Strom Thurmond heard the news as he was leaving services at First Baptist Church, got in his car and headed for the scene as he realized there was no other law enforcement in the county left to take charge. Charles Simmons, later a law partner and confidant of Strom Thurmond before becoming a U.S. District Judge, was present at the scene. Then, in his mid-twenties, he knew Deputy Clark as a fellow townsman from Johnson. Simmons saw Thurmond walk onto the porch and heard someone inside yelling out, Don't come in, Strom, or we'll have to kill you. Thurmond removed his suit jacket, unbuttoned his vest, and turned his pants pockets inside out to demonstrate he was unarmed. Then he entered. He talked Sue into surrendering and escorted her out of the house. More than 50 years later, Simmons said, Now that takes guts. Contemporary accounts pay tribute to Thurmond as a hero determined to prevent further bloodshed, saying that after going alone to the house and demonstrating on the porch that he was unarmed, he asked to speak to George and Sue Logue. A voice said that George had left the house and Sue was not feeling well. Thurmond insisted on speaking to her and finally was told to come to the back door. There he found himself facing a shotgun held by a Logue family friend. After talking his way inside, where he learned that George was gone and Dorn's body had been removed, he persuaded Sue to surrender. He escorted her safely through the hostile crowd outside. Hortense Woodson would write that Judge Thurman was accorded widespread commendation for his courageous act. Although these accounts allude to Thurmond knowing the Logues, the stories still whispered in Edgefield tell of Strom's long affair with Sue, who campaigned for him when he ran for county superintendent of education and whom he allowed to teach in the county schools despite unwritten rules generally excluding married women from teaching positions. Her reputation for sexual prowess 
was such that men told stories of her reputed vaginal muscular dexterity. The lore includes a tale of her and Strom found flagrant delicto in the superintendent's office. Three weeks after Strom escorted Sue out of the farmhouse, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Judge Thurman responded by sending a telegram the next day to President Roosevelt volunteering for active duty. We heard about that last week. Although a new state law would allow a leave of absence as a judge, he was exempt from military duty. His political enemies later contended that he volunteered at least partly to get away from the sensational atmosphere of the Logue case, which was written up in April 1942 for official detective stories. He had resigned from the Army Reserve in 1937, and his correspondence shows he expected to go on active duty soon after war was declared. Whatever the timing with the low case, however, for Thurmond to volunteer immediately was consistent with his record as a man of action imbued with the tradition of Edgefield. He held a core belief that a people must be willing to defend freedom. His subsequent volunteering for the most dangerous type of combat duty clearly demonstrated his desire to be part of the fight. Skipping down a little bit, uh, let's see. So Sue Logue and all of these folks get convicted. No mercy. They're going to be electrocuted. The state Supreme Court turned down their appeal and all three died in the electric chair on January 15, 1943. Sue Logue was the first woman ever electrocuted in South Carolina. Randall Johnson, a black man who supervised colored help at the state house, and often served as a driver and messenger drove Sue from the women's penitentiary to the death house at the main penitentiary in Columbia. In the back seat with her, he said many years later, was Thurmond, then an army officer on active duty. They were a hugging and a kissing the whole way, said Johnson, whom Thurmond later as governor considered a trusted driver. Skipping down a little bit in whispered graveyard talk, the kind of stories not to be told to outsiders, the word around South Carolina was that Joe Frank and his Aunt Sue was the only person wait a minute, shall I read? The word around South Carolina was that Joe Frank said his Aunt Sue was the only person ever seduced on the way to the electric chair. Now, I just wanted to include that as I got free time, so I flipped through the biography, including that just because that's, I guess, what they might call a colorful story, if having three people be electrocuted, not to mention all the other carnage around all of this, over a calf and again the notion of Strom Thurmond and the love of his life I mean really if this is accurate a woman is on the way to the electric chair 
a married woman and you I gotta get in a little bit more sugar before you get out of here and I, I mean I guess if we are to believe what has been told that her reputed vaginal muscular dexterity add that to the record Jay Strom Thurmond doesn't get any better than tacky all the way around we will get back to S.E. May Washington Williams, Dear Senator, audio segment one. That spirit deflated no sooner than I changed trains in Washington, D.C., and boarded the segregated coach, which seemed exactly like the same stifling car I had taken on my first journey south five years ago. Again, I saw the same bedraggled men loitering in the stations, the same tobacco and cotton fields, the same sharecropper cabins, unfit to live in. After an eternity of clickety-clack and cigarette smoke, I got off the train at the Union Depot in Columbia. Same white and colored waiting rooms, water fountains, restrooms. Why I thought the World War might have changed things, I'll never know. I guess I felt that if our black soldiers could fight for America, America could fight for them. But that was not to be not now. I spent two long hours in the back of a bus to Orangeburg, which was a fairly large town compared to Edgefield. I saw a sign stating the population was 15,000, the same as Coatesville, compared to the 2,500 in Edgefield. Columbia then had 80,000 people. There were big cotton mills and other factories on the outskirts of the city. The smokestacks were nowhere as tall as the ones in Coatesville, but they symbolized industry. I took it as a sign of progress that the South wasn't all sharecroppers in the hot, hard fields. It was September and brutally hot and humid, so hot that no one was out in the main square when the bus let me off, carrying my two heavy suitcases. I was sorry I had brought my winter clothes with me, I couldn't imagine it ever being cold here. The first thing I noticed at the square was the towering monument of a Confederate soldier with a rifle and slouch hat. The sign read, in defense of our rights, our honor, our homes. Large pools of goldfish swimming in them reflected the monument. Big Confederate flags flew from nearby banks and public office buildings, as well as from the imposing First Baptist Church anchoring a corner of the square. I had no idea where the college was. I wandered up and down the main drag of Russell Street. There was a tall hotel, the Hotel Utah, maybe ten stories, which was a skyscraper down here. Natalie dressed black bellmen stood outside, and Cadillacs pulled up, driven by white men in seersucker suits and straw hats. Evidently, there was some money in the area. Reinforcing this notion was the array of stores on Russell Street. There was a big McClellan's 5 and 10, a McCrory's, a Kresge, an Eford's department store, several big movie theaters, appliance stores, jewelry stores, and a large number of fancy dress shops and men's stores with more of those seersucker suits in the windows. All the clothing stores had Jewish names over the doorways. This was like it had been in Edgefield, 
but on a much larger scale. That was the most reassuring thing about Orangeburg, those Jewish names. If these outsiders could make it in this very alien place, there might be hope for me. I saw two nice-looking restaurants, the Sanitary Café and Ferris's Restaurant. I was starving. My first instinct was to go in and have a bite. Then I looked in the windows and saw no black patrons. I remembered where I was and tried to ignore the delicious smell of the hot grease that fried the chicken and shrimp. The five and tens all had lunch counters. I peered in and saw them full of white people enjoying grilled cheese sandwiches and milkshakes. There were a few black people in the store shopping but not eating. I didn't dare attempt to get food, even to go. I had heard about Southern hospitality, but I knew where the line was drawn. I went back to the Hotel Utah and asked one of the black bellmen where the college was. He told me it was about a mile away. He found me a taxi with a black driver and took me to the campus. Sweaty and ready to drop, I finally reached the school known to everyone as State. It was on the edge of town, far away from the business district, very green and filled with trees, with attractive brick buildings adorned with those classical white columns that are the hallmark of Southern architecture. Some call it Jeffersonian after the president's famed home, Monticello. Some call it Palladian after the Italian architect who inspired Jefferson. I call it plantation. In any event, the college looked impressive, substantial, and quite collegiate, much more like Columbia, though nowhere as grand. Then, like the factory buildings of NYU. There was, however, one very disturbing feature, a tall wire fence that encircled the entire perimeter of the large campus. It reminded me of nothing other than a prison. The campus was bustling with arriving students. My first impression was how proper everyone looked. All the young men in coats and ties, all the young women in nice formal dresses. There were no jeans, no t-shirts, no shorts. The hot weather called for comfort, but the school obviously called for decorum. I felt sloppy. I wanted to find my room, bathe, and change. A second, bigger impression was that everyone was black. Harlem wasn't this uniformly black. I hadn't been in an all-black environment since my one year of segregated junior high. It felt unnatural, as bizarre as that tall prison fence around the campus. And everyone was so serious, so dignified, so proper. These were people in their late teens, early 20s, some older, who I suppose were coming back to school after the war, but they all seemed much more grown up, like business people, more than students. No one was throwing balls or clowning around or having any fun. I quickly surmised that college, at least this college, was going to be a very serious enterprise. I went to the administration building, presented my papers, and was given my assignment in the woman's dormitory. The registration process was very efficient, very somber. Everyone was polite, no one effusive. I guess I again was expecting that Southern hospitality that wasn't forthcoming from blacks or whites. I liked the dorm, which had big rooms and high ceilings and fans that provided the breath of fresh air that nature herself was withholding. There was a house mother 
who happened to be the college president's aunt. She assigned us our rooms, which were homey, in contrast to the stiff reception. I had two roommates who slept in bunk beds. They were kind enough to give me the single bed, which I thought was very gracious. They said it was because I had come the longest distance. One roommate was a nice girl from Columbia, whose schoolteacher mother had been a graduate of state, making her second generation in high class in the social scheme here. She had very light skin. I wondered who her father might be. The other was a pretty girl from Jacksonville, Florida. Her father had an exterminating business, which must have done well as she wore fancy clothes. She was also quite fair. In fact, there were many light-skinned women, seemingly half the campus. There were lots of middle-class girls from all over South Carolina, as well as from Georgia and Tennessee. They were all talking about their fathers, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. No one mentioned janitors or porters, and certainly not sharecroppers. I was frankly surprised that so many black families in the South were doing well enough to send their children to college, which I thought was a fairly unreachable holy grail. Seeing these girls in their fancy dresses, setting out their silver-framed photos of their attractive families on their dressers, comparing notes on summer holidays in the Blue Ridge or on the Outer Banks, I was astonished at the prosperity around me. It made me proud, if not a little insecure. State was not exactly a black finishing school, as there were plenty of poor students there as well, as I would find, but it was far more affluent than I was, or than I would have guessed. With all the family comparisons, I was tempted to brag about my father. You think your daddy's so special? Well, you know who my daddy is? He's the governor of this fair state. He is Mr. Palmetto himself. I would have loved to say, in your face, is the expression today. But the temptation quickly passed. I wasn't crazy, and I was very grateful to my father for making it possible for me to come here to state. I couldn't afford to lose the opportunity in front of me. For me, it was a state of grace. The girls were very curious about me, and especially about why I had come all the way down here from Pennsylvania. Why didn't I go to Howard or Lincoln? The idea was for blacks to leave the South, not come here. I told them I had relatives in Edgefield, that I was a South Carolina girl at heart. I wanted to come home to my roots. I'm not so sure they bought it. A lot of them seemed to be intrigued by the idea of going north themselves, of getting out of the South, despite their families having done well here. The North was still the promised land to them, and why someone would voluntarily leave heaven and go back down South, if not to hell, then somewhere short of paradise, was confusing to my classmates. When I told them I had lived in Harlem and started out in nursing school there, they were all the more impressed and mystified that I would trade the cotton club for the cotton fields. Luckily for me, there were no other girls from Edgefield who might have known more about my past or be privy to rumors that may have emanated from old Buncombe. While there was clearly a lot of white blood in these girls' veins, I didn't want my white blood to become an issue that might interfere with my education. Directly adjacent to state was another all-black institution, the private Claflin College. It, too, had tall, impressive buildings and lots of serious students, as well as a high fence. 
State had 1,000 students, Claflin 600, making Orangeburg the center of black higher education in the state, sort of a black college town version of Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Cambridge, England for that matter. Claflin, I had learned, had been founded right after the Civil War by a Yankee philanthropist who was committed to educating the children of slavery. This man, Lee Claflin, also founded Boston University. State was founded in the 1890s when the federal government required each state with a large Negro population to establish a land grant or trade school that was separate but equal to the white public trade colleges that would not admit them. Clemson, my father's alma mater, was such a white land-grant college, founded under the governorship mm -hmm. of Pitchfork Ben Tillman, who convinced an heir of his idol, John C. Calhoun, to donate the Calhoun Plantation as Clemson's campus. At our first convocation in the school's large auditorium, President M. F. Whitaker, a distinguished educator in the W. E. B. Du Bois mode, had made it clear what a tight ship he was running. The discipline seemed more suited to West Point or Annapolis than a regular college. That fence was there for a reason, to keep us on campus. The fence had gates, which were never locked at night. It seemed to be there more for symbolic value to comfort the uneasy white residents of Orangeburg about all the young black people in their midst. State students were invariably so well-behaved there was no need for locks or for white anxiety. We were allowed to leave the school grounds only on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and had to be back by 5 p.m. in time for dinner. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we were allowed off campus to go to the local movie theaters. We were admonished to always sit in the balconies, but at least we had the movies. That was a relief. On Saturday, we could have dances, parties, and so forth, but always on campus. We were grounded to avoid any incidents when all the white farmers and potential Ku Klux Klan types would come to town for their big night out. On Sunday, we were to go to church to pray. Orangeburg was full of churches, and we were advised to avail ourselves of them. There were also required Friday chapel services to put the fear of God in us about the weekend ahead. From what I could see of the impeccably mannered, polite students, the fear had long ago been instilled. There was absolutely no need for that fence, despite what our white neighbors must have dreaded. Aside from geometry, I loved all my classes, especially literature and history. I knew I was getting a higher education. The classes were small, and the professors who had master's degrees from Harvard, Columbia, and the University of Chicago took the curse of, off of black education. I can't imagine white education being any better. Unlike at NYU, where you would never speak to a professor without an appointment set weeks in advance, I got to know all my teachers, who'd have us in their homes and give us all the time we needed. Of course, this being South Carolina, and this being a state-supported school, there was no such thing as black studies. Yes, we took pride in black successes, from Hannibal of Carthage to Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee, but... For example, we were never asked to read and analyze Uncle Tom's Cabin.
the Civil War was not portrayed as a battle over slavery, but rather one of economics, of agriculture versus industry. I was eager to take the more advanced courses. Furthermore, the school was anything but a hotbed of politics. There was no chapter of the NAACP, nor any other political organizations. Unlike in New York, where somebody was always protesting something. I very much doubted that Reverend Adam Clayton Powell would be invited to speak to us. The students didn't seem interested in the changing the world, in changing the world, only in improving their private worlds. The main focus was on career and marriage. Most of the students were taking practical vocational courses, bookkeeping, accounting, industrial efficiency, engineering. I saw lots of courses in crop science and the like that I'm sure my father would have been thrilled to see me enroll in, but I much preferred reading Dickens and Balzac and Faulkner and learning about the pharaohs of Egypt and the Caesars of ancient Rome. Charlemagne and the Magna Carta, Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt, to learning the optimal way to can peaches or the science of hothouse tomatoes. I did take education courses and practical things like typing and shorthand. Whatever I took, the education I was getting continually excited me about the education I was going to be giving one day. In my spare time, I naturally went to the movies, not caring much where I sat whenever the screen lit up with the likes of Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, and Ingrid Bergman. The most popular film was also The Naughtiest. The Postman Always Rings Twice with Lana Turner. I was surprised they even showed it there in the Bible Belt, but both whites and blacks lined up. There were three student cafes near the campus that served only blacks. They became our hangouts. To drink Cokes and Malteds, which is liquor, strictly prohibited on and off of campus. We would eat hot dogs and burgers and listen to the jukeboxes and sometimes dance to singles like Zippity-Doo-Da or Hey Baba Rebop or Come Rain or Come Shine. There were black singers and white singers and Bing Crosby was just as popular as Louis Armstrong. The state students weren't Uncle Tom's, however, they simply weren't politicized at this point. With our curfews and fences, we lived in an all-black universe, but our eyes and hope were always on the white one down the road. We all loved our outings downtown, to go shopping, or more accurately, window shopping at all the stores, pretending we were rich and could afford uh, to get any of this finery we wanted. Maybe we hoped this education would pay off one day. The white storekeepers were generally very kind to us, never running us off or shooing us away or even giving us dirty looks, and the white customers generally paid us no mind and went about their own business. Of course, state students were famous for their good behavior, so I guess the Orangeburg whites approved of us as a credit to our race and were deeply relieved that we weren't on some savage rampage that Ben Tillman might have predicted. Everything was going very well at school. It was football season, late October when the weather had cooled down a bit and the leaves were starting to turn. Saturdays were football days. 
when we played at home against another all-black school like North Carolina A&T, agricultural and technical, or Tennessee A&I, agricultural and industrial, the campus was like a carnival. We had marching bands before the games, bonfires afterward, and great dances when the bands would take off their uniforms and put on suits and play jazz and bebop. The big men on campus were the football players, and the top girls were the cheerleaders, who were always the girls with the fairest complexions. In those days, the closer you were to white, the classier, and more beautiful you were considered. I never considered going out for cheerleading, my fair complexion notwithstanding. I just wasn't a cheerleader type. I was too introspective. I would never be bubbly enough. This weekend, the team was playing away, in Georgia somewhere, and we weren't allowed to follow. Not even the cheerleaders could go. The home team advantage held even greater significance in those restrictive days. As lively as state was on home game weekends, that's how dead it was on away games. I was surprised when I was called to the administrative building, to President Whitaker's office, on that sleepy Saturday. Had I done something wrong? Was someone in my family sick? Thoughts of disaster ran through my mind as I raced across campus to Loman Hall. I climbed the long staircase and went to the president's office. I was surprised he was around on Saturdays. This must be awful, I shuddered. A secretary in the outer office greeted me and showed me into the inner sanctum. There with the president of the state was the governor-elect of the state. Hello, SMA, Strom Thurmond said, standing up and crushing my hand with that magic grip that had gotten him elected. Hello, er, Judge. We're already calling him governor, President Whitaker said. I wasn't sure what to say. I was in a panic. What did the president know? My father seemed totally relaxed, so whatever it was couldn't be bad. I hear you're doing very well here at State, SMA, my father said. I like it very much, sir. I knew you would, he said, turning to President Whitaker. She could have gone to Harvard, but I talked her into this. We appreciate that, Governor. I believe it's better to be a big fish in a small pond rather than the other way around. The President addressed me. I hope we're keeping you busy. Yes, sir, I declared. I'm learning a lot. That's what we're here for, President Whitaker said. Listen, Governor, I'll leave you alone. I'm sure you have lots of catching up to do. The President exited his big office. My father and I were alone. He gave me a big smile. What does he think? He thinks you're an excellent student, my father said. No, not about me, about you know, sir. I simply couldn't say it. The fact of his being my father made me uncomfortable beyond belief. I told him that you're a dear family friend from Edgefield, that your family helped my family for a long time, that we're really all one family, which is true, isn't it? Strom Thurmond grinned at me. I wasn't sure if it was a conspiratorial grin or a loophole grin or a happy-to-see-you grin. You never told me you were going to be governor. I had no idea when I last saw you. It just happened. Congratulations. It's wonderful. I can't believe it. Thank you, SMA. Neither can I. 
I'm in the army being shot at one day and in the mansion the next. Life can change just like that. It's a nice change. Yes, it is. And I'm happy for you to be here. Now you stick it out, you hear? Yes, sir. I've got big plans for this school. I'm going to do all I can for it, he promised. How's the food? They serve us lots of vegetables, sir, all homegrown. I said knowing he would be pleased. He was. Are you getting exercise? I walk to town, sir, every couple of days. Walk every chance you get. Stay off the buses. Who wants to ride in the black bus anyway? In the back of the bus anyway? I wanted to say, but I didn't. He told me that he expected to accomplish a great deal in office because his chief nemesis was stepping down as Speaker of the State House. Soul Black? How do you know that, SMA? I read the newspaper, sir. The Barnwell Ring? You beat them. I sure did, I declare. You know about Soul Black? Why was he so bad? He cared more about his cronies than he cared about this state. He's what you call a real politician. I'm just an amateur. How did a Jew get so high up in this state, especially after Governor Franklin Moses? You know everything, my father marveled. I like history. If you know your history, you won't repeat its mistakes, he said. You're a real South Carolinian SMA. As far as Franklin Moses, he came from one of our finest families. I think the Yankees brainwashed him. That was a crazy period, where people, even the finest people, got turned upside down. As far as Jewish people, South Carolina has always welcomed the Jews. Look at the other Moseses, Judah P. Benjamin. Some of our greatest leaders have been Jews. So black, I wish he was more of a Jew. He married a Gentile woman, eats all the pork he can if it means a vote. If you're a good person and a talented person in this state, you can write your own ticket. But not if you're a good and talented black person, I mused. But it was a bad thought. Here I was in South Carolina getting my dream of a college education. Who was I to be greedy, to be ungrateful? Rome wasn't built in a day, was it? I'm proud of you, SMA. Knowing about all this, the governor-elect said to me. But not proud enough to protect my vote, I thought. But again, suppress the heresy. I was thrilled he had come to see me. That took courage. More important, it proved to me, once and for all, that he cared. He didn't stop caring. He came to visit one more time before the end of the year, also on a quiet Saturday. President Whitaker again let us use his office. I gathered that my father had business with Whitaker, formulating his big plans for the college. He didn't want to leave without seeing me. It was all very proper, very polite, handshakes, not hugs, no talk of family. Whatever our cover story, it was justified by the formality of our interaction. Talk of courses, history, and politics. He reminisced about his own education at Clemson, where the only choice he had as a major was agriculture, engineering, or textiles. He had no choice, he said, and waxed eloquent about his teachers and his starring days on the track team. 
He described how he once ran 18 miles in new shoes that caused him to lose all his toenails. He was so proud of this because of the pain he endured and the record he set. It's a shame women don't run, he said. The best exercise there is, and you can do it anywhere. All you need is a road. He also told me how Clemson was a military school when he went there, and about the virtues of the military discipline he learned. Pain and discipline could have been my father's middle names. Yet, it all added up to one big lecture, no true love or true confessions, which was what I would have savored. Diet was as personal as it got, and not just for my benefit. I once heard my father expound on the virtues of turnips to President Whitaker, how many vitamins the turnip greens had, how they should be serving them in the cafeteria. He didn't give me any envelopes of money in those college visits. As my room and board were paid for, there was no need for any. I don't think he wanted the president uh, to see him passing me cash. That might have implied a different relationship, and my father, lawyer, judge, now governor, had to be above reproach. Yet I did find it rather bold for a man of his position to risk all kinds of scandal by coming to see me. It was so gallant, it was chivalrous, it was daring. I loved it. What woman wouldn't respond to a great man taking such great risks for her? My connection to my father was hardly fatherly, however. It remained as distant as when I had visited him with my two mothers. Our surface dealings were precisely that, all superficial and completely unemotional, despite my inner turmoil. The governor-elect was a very cool character. He never showed his hand. I could see how he had done so well in battle. Nothing rattled him, and he was always in charge of the situation. That's what leaders, I suppose, were made of. I was impressed at how discreet the college president was. Not that he thought the governor and I had anything to hide. Still, a visit with a mere student by the governor-elect was grounds for major gossip. And given the president's aunt's role as our house mother, the likelihood of a rumor starting was high. Nevertheless, I never heard a word. On the other hand, my classmates were so ladylike and well-mannered that I doubt they would have done anything to make me feel uncomfortable, even if they had known the facts. In early January 1947, I was chosen by President Whitaker to go with a group of state students to Columbia to see the gubernatorial inauguration. By now, it was actually cold, colder than I ever imagined South Carolina could be, perhaps in the high 30s, and I was glad I had brought my Yankee clothes. My father gave a wonderful speech, a liberal speech, in which he spoke of a new era of reforms, that would help working people and poor people. He actually sounded like Franklin Roosevelt, or Roosevelt with a southern accent, talking about New Deal-style measures. Education was a big issue, particularly black education, which I'm sure is why Whitaker took us to hear Strom Thurmond. He also railed against the evils of the poll tax, which was a way to keep poor people who couldn't afford the tax from voting. Everything, he said, rang of hope. Here was a friend of poor people, of black people, 
who wanted to get rid of the power politics of the Barnwell ring. He was someone who wanted to replace the racist good old boys with something fair and just. A lot of my female classmates talked about how young and handsome the new governor was. I was careful not to brag myself, but I had to agree with them. Despite his lack of hair, he was tall and fit, and for 44, quite a striking and vibrant man, masculine and powerful, every inch the soldier, now the statesman. Imagine, that was my father up there on the steps of this magnificent state house, being sworn in as chief of this state. Next to him was his mother, my grandmother, whom I had never met and whom I might never meet. She looked old and very skinny, like someone from another era. I had seen ancient photographs of the Old South, and Eleanor Gertrude Strom Thurman resembled those hard scrabble farmers' wives, tough and flinty and without a smile. She was the antithesis of the Scarlet O'Hara plantation goddess. But that was the movies, and this was real life. If my father seemed a bit formal and stiff, I could see where he had gotten it. Gertrude was scary, formidable. I would have bet my life she didn't have a clue about my mother. She looked as if she would have killed her son if she had. Small wonder he found comfort in the arms of my mother, who was nothing like his own. Thus, on one hand, I felt special on this crisp inauguration day, Yet on the other, I felt completely, as it were, out in the cold. The rest of my father's family, my family, was standing behind him. His two tall brothers and his three sisters. I had seen only one before, the lady who had brought the envelope of money to us in Old Buncombe. I saw she had a twin. One was Mary and one mm -hmm. was Martha, but who could tell? There was another sister, Gertrude, who was a spinster and a schoolteacher, and both brothers, John William II and Alan George, the two gynecologists. Maybe their mother was so forbidding that they chose this specialty as their only way to find out about women. That my father, his older brother, and his sister were all unmarried was a bizarre statistic in the South where marriage was the bedrock of the social order. I just kept staring at my grandmother. She was the key to all these mysteries. Mysteries I was afraid I would never solve. I wanted to be up there on the podium with them. This was my family, but I didn't know them and they didn't know me. In time, in time, I prayed to myself, if my father could change this state with its Confederate flags flying and its Confederate soldiers standing vigil atop their obelisks, I had reason to hope he could change his own house. I flattered myself by thinking that my own existence might have something to do with his progressive stance. As we black students filed into our all-black bus on our way back to our all-black school, and my white father and his white family and friends prepared to celebrate his taking office, I had reason to hope that the fence that separated my world from his was on the verge of coming down.
I got a chance to test my father's values in action right away. Soon after the inauguration, South Carolina showed its old and true colors by having a lynching. In February 1947, a 25-year-old black man named Willie Earl was arrested in Greenville for assaulting and robbing a white cab driver. When the cab driver later died, a mob of 35 white men, most of them fellow cabbies, all armed with shotguns and knives, broke into the jail where Willie Earl, was, who was an epileptic, was being held. They dragged Earl out of the jail, just as the mob had dragged Zachariah Walker out of Coatesville Hospital in 1911. Earl was shot in the head multiple times, and his body was eviscerated by the long knives of the white mob. I was horrified. Lynchings were a symbol of the South, and here it was. The fact that I had been privy to them in Coatesville didn't dilute their impact. There they were the exception, here the rule. I read in the paper what the jailer said when he surrendered Earl to the mob. They had shotguns and I danced to their music. It wasn't all that clear that Earl was guilty of killing the cabbie. Earl's mother said he had come back drunk. His jacket had bloodstains on it. He carried a Boy Scout knife, but that was all the proof they had. Whatever, this poor epileptic was entitled to a trial, not a medieval tor torture. My father expressed his outrage. He called the lynching a blot on the state of Carolina, South Carolina. I was surprised to learn that it had been the Palmetto State's first lynching in 20 years. Referring to his wartime service, my father invoked the Nazis in denouncing mob rule as against every principle for which we have so recently sacrificed so much. The governor wanted to bring industry to the state. He wanted to attract the top professors to its colleges. He wanted respect around the country. How could he get any of it with, the, with such barbarism? The governor worked hand-in-hand -hand with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI to round up Willie Earl's lynchers. President Truman was proving to be a far stauncher advocate of civil rights than his predecessor, Roosevelt. Armed with his federal mandate, the authorities indicted 31 of the killers and identified the ringleader and trigger man as a taxi dispatcher named Roosevelt Hurd. It seemed like an open and shut case that would do a great deal to rehabilitate South Carolina's reputation as a hotbed of racism to expunge the curse of Pitchfork Ben Tillman. I was quickly disheartened to see the tide begin to turn in favor of the white mob. Many of the white businesses in Greenville contributed to a fundraising campaign for the accused murderers. Thousands of dollars were donated. Then, the all-powerful Colombian newspaper, The State, commenced its own campaign. First, it denounced FBI interference with Southern justice. Ever since Reconstruction, the South detested any federal or outside interference with its internal affairs. 
The sight of Yankee investigators was a provocative red flag to Southern bulls. Furthermore, the state declared Willie Earle guilty without a trial. The paper simply presumed he was the murderer and would have been executed anyhow. All the mob did was save South Carolina the cost of a public execution. My father was steadfast in expressing his commitment to justice, a sentiment echoed by the NAACP, which had taken a strong interest in the case. The whole nation was watching, and I found it invigorating to witness my father on the same side as the NAACP. The trial began in Greenville that May and was the largest lynching trial up to that date in American history. The testimony was grisly. Witnesses described how Willie Earl had been dragged, pistol-whipped, stabbed, shot, and cut to pieces. Still, none of the defendants would confess to anything. They admitted hearing the torture and shooting and slicing, but none admitted seeing any of it. And not one witness would come forward to finger a single suspect. The trial was a legal circus that galvanized the country like the O.J. Simpson trial, minus the celebrities and the television. As it went on, the white people of South Carolina got more and more protective of their own. Sympathy mounted for cab drivers forced to pick up dangerous Negroes to earn a living in these depressed post-war years. Most of the accused cabbies had been World War II veterans, and this was the thanks they were getting for defending their nation. Defense lawyers attacked the Northern press for sensationalizing the issue to sell papers. They attacked the FBI agents as troublemakers and meddlers, the outside agitators label that would later be pinned on civil rights activists in the 1960s. They attacked President Truman for trumping up the case to pander to prejudiced Yankee voters. It was North versus South all over again. The first time I would see an issue reduced to regional animosities, but hardly the last. In the end, the South won, as it would time after time, in its efforts to restage the Civil War over civil rights. The all-white jury of Green Villians convened for only a few hours before returning with a mass acquittal. Bands played Dixie. People danced in the streets. The, they lit celebratory bonfires in Orangeburg that chilled me with the images of the burning of Zachariah Walker. The college administration warned us to stay away from town, even on our free days. I was scared for a while. But it passed. What scared me even more was the apathy of most of my fellow students. Not that I was a firebrand. I was as meek as the rest. But there were no protests, no marches, no petitions, no real interest. At least I was desperate to talk about what was going on. The others just let it slide. They didn't discuss the horror of the lynching. They didn't express relief. That, that, that they had a governor, my father, who was standing up for black rights. The collective trauma of the event seemed to dissipate at the south gates, at the state gates. 
Like most of white South Carolina, the state students tended to assume Willie Earl was a drunk, a bad seed who had committed a crime he shouldn't have and paid the price. It was a southern price, but he lived here and should have known better. This wouldn't happen to a state student. We were too smart. We were too good. We were destined for success. We were black, but we were different. My father held his line. Disappointed in the verdict, he asserted that the fact there had been a trial at all would deter future lynchings. And he was right. He was praised by all the Yankee papers, particularly by the New York Times, which was considered by Southerners the house organ of the spirit of radical reconstruction. Throughout the months of the state's wrenching legal ordeal, my father continued to visit me on campus, if only for an hour, a half hour or so. His favorite question, which he asked whenever he saw me, was, How does it feel to be the daughter of a governor? My answer was always the same. It doesn't bother me at all. I was trying to joke with him, but he took it with a stone face. To him, I suppose, our deep secret wasn't a joking matter. Still, this was the first time he himself had verbally acknowledged that I was his child. He used the D word, which he had not done in our previous meetings. It didn't get closer than that. But to me, it was a breakthrough. The other breakthrough was that at the same meeting when he used the D word, he actually hugged me goodbye. These small gestures of affection meant the world to me. It was the first time he had embraced me or given me anything more than those iron handshakes. Yes, it was behind closed doors, away from prying eyes, but given my father's previous straight arrow aversion to any public or private display of affection, it seemed like a miracle to me. Being the governor's daughter felt good indeed. Just knowing I had a father felt good. The title was icing, fancy icing on an increasingly good cake. My father barely mentioned the Willie Earl case as if he were ashamed to bring it up on this black campus, notwithstanding his being on the right side. In fact, he never mentioned anything about my being black. I think he was confused because I was his, whether he wanted to claim me or not. In his eyes, I wasn't really fully a Negro. The whole issue seemed to make him uncomfortable. And so, smooth political statesman that he was, he didn't address it. We talked briefly about the Willie Earl matter, but not once did he refer to race, only to justice, about a man who was denied a fair trial, and about a mob who unlawfully hijacked justice to their own malevolent ends. It wasn't black and white, it was crime and punishment. To the rest of America, it was black and white north and south. When I returned to Coltsville for the summer of 1948, that's all the people there wanted to talk about. My family and friends had been worried about me, though the family who were aware about my father knew that there was nothing to worry about. Who could have been in better hands? Even though I lived in a fairly black world in Coatesville, it was nowhere as black as my world in Orangeburg. The sense of separation of the races 
wasn't the same. The tension which existed before the Willie Earl case and was accentuated by it wasn't here. We may have known our place in Coatesville, but we weren't forced into it by the barrel of a shotgun. I went to Chester to visit my mother Carrie that summer. She didn't look well at all. She had been having kidney problems, she said, and seemed puffy and older, haggard. The sexiness in her step was diminished. Although she was now living with a man, a black man named George, who was rarely around when I was there. Carrie didn't seem to want to talk about him, other than to say it was good to have a man around for Willie, who was going through his teenage phase. She confided that she hadn't heard from my father once during the entire year I had been at Orangeburg. I think he's forgotten me, she concluded dejectedly. If he's remembering me, how can he forget you? You're his girl. He's a gentleman. Always a gentleman. He keeps up with his duties. Doesn't he have one to you? Only to look after you, baby, Carrie said, as drained of hope as I had seen her. I tried to pepper up by telling her about state, about the inauguration, about my own growing up, and she expressed lots of love, but little verve. It was more like relief that at least something was working out. I could tell she still was carrying a torch for my father, but now that he was on the national stage, the opportunities to continue their secret and forbidden romance had been extinguished. If they could lynch Willie Earl, I shuddered at what South Carolina could do to my father and to me if it came out that he had a decades-long love affair with his black maid. Not only would it have instantly destroyed his political career, but I sincerely believed it would put me, as well as my father, in physical jeopardy. That the state's standard-bearer could fall from grace in such a way could precipitate the worst sort of reprisals. Sex and miscegenation were powder-keg topics in the South. Once that fuse was lit, the explosion could be fatal. I had seen the irrationality of race hatred. The dragon's fire breath of the clan was as palpable in South Carolina as the scent of magnolias. I could see the anger, the suppressed rebel violence on the faces of the poor white farmers, the factory workers, the unemployed always looking for a scapegoat for their misfortunes and dislocations. No, the Civil War was far from over. I didn't want to be caught in the crossfire. But above all, above my personal fears, I felt awful for Carrie. Love had made her happy, and now the loss of that love was making her physically sick. It made me cautious about love myself. I hadn't fallen yet, and given my secret background, I wasn't sure I'd ever be able to let go and take the plunge. Easily the saddest book I have ever read. Uh, we are more than halfway through this text. I cannot imagine. I can't even think of any, any other book that we've read that's even close. Easily the saddest book I have ever read read Jesus Christ I keep I keep crapping it's like every week 
it'll be just one short sentence. I'll be like, oh my God, this is the saddest book I've ever read. When I, remember when I said before, the first time they went to South Carolina, she doesn't know her father is Jay Strom Thurman, and she's going into his office, and a black male opens the door, who's like the uh, butler or whatever, opens the door, and she thinks that's her dad, and she goes to this black stranger, oh, dad, she's going to run to give him a hug, and he's looking at her like, who's this? Who's this? Let me go get Strom. Master, <laughs> got some niggers out here. Hi, yellow gal. That was one. She had one last week, too. I had to. Oh, and she's thinking. She said she could imagine her mom and Jay Strom Thurman walking hand in hand in New York. And no one gives a care. Remember that? That was from last week. And it, oh, my gosh. She just piled. This is the saddest book I have ever read. Jesus Christ. Uh, and. T- <laughs> All that romance and what have you. I had uh, I have two notes uh, and then we will fast forward. So this is all from they stole him out of jail. Dr. Gravely, we heard him in the introduction to today's broadcast. He wrote this book, White Man. Uh, We'll see if maybe we can get him on the program. So quickly, he writes, number one, the mainstream press and black newspapers praised Strom Thurmond's uncompromising stance from the first day in office he had focused on reform of the constabulary had given current highway commissioner Joel Townsend the task and was already getting results in fact the governor wanted to move the state police under his executive control against all the mob violence I'm skipping a few pages down in the book the white prime skipping a chapter ahead in fact to a family member who reported the governor's opponents were giving him the devil Thurman stated his logic. I do not believe in mob rule. He wrote knowing the domino effect of vigilantism. If a crowd will go out here and overpower a man by force or lynch him through mob rule, the next day the same crowd may decide to do the same thing to someone else. Thurman turned his agenda for the General Assembly to take up an ambitious program. He articulated the considerable challenges facing the state, made new appointments and hosted civic and student groups. Among the 48 states, South Carolina had the third lowest annual per capita income, the sixth lowest per pupil expenditure for public schools and the second fewest telephones per 1000 residents. Wow. I suspect some of these statistics are the same in terms of where they rank amongst the states in the U.S. I know they are amongst the bottom in pedestrian safety. We talked about that last summer. Uh, Continuing as for public health and safety problems it had high syphilis and homicide rates. Its politics had rotten spots such as in the pardon and parole politics of former governors Williams. Though the Deep South region received $11 billion in federal aid for war industries, the goal to bring the region, including South Carolina, into an improved way of life required imaginative leadership. In his private life, Thurman began to pay special attention to 20-year-old Gene Crouch, senior class president at Winthrop College. He first met her when she was 15 but saw Crouch last while visiting her father during his campaign for governor. While with working with Winthrop's president, he ensured that she was in the delegation from the state's college for women to attend his inauguration in January. I think we just heard about that. Uh, let's see. Anything? 
few more. I'll, I'll share a few more uh, from this. Let's see. Should I get these in now? Oh, yeah, I'll get these last two now. Briefly on one of their visits, Thurman and his daughter discussed the Earl lynching. She remembered that not once did he refer to race, only to justice about a man who denied a fair trial about a mob who unlawfully hijacked justice. It wasn't black and white. It was crime and punishment. As the politician's biographer Nadine Kohadas noted, Thurman would easily condemn violent acts such as the Willie Earl lynching and the 1955 murder of Emmett Till in Mississippi but he never made the connection between the society that fostered the killings and the killers themselves to do otherwise required seeing how we live in the house that race built white supremacy and the deep meanings of the color codes of black and white interviewed in 1880 excuse me interviewed in 1989 at the age of 86 Senator Thurman objected to calling the killing of Willie Earl a lynching. He said it was a murder. He talked less about 1947 than about capital punishment trials over which he presided as a district judge. Years earlier, responding to a letter asking him to support the civil rights bill, he claimed that his role in prosecuting the Greenville lynch mob had improved race relations. As biographers began to write about him, they gave credit for his law and order stand after the lynching, noting that it was the last such event of its kind in the state. I was going to say it the other way, naming the killer, but let's do it the other way. The Charleston Nine. Mother Emanuel AME Church. Former state senator. Dr. Clementa Pinckney. Wasn't that a lynching? To consider uh, last lynching, make sure I get the rest of it in his characteristic gregarious self shown through during the interview. Clearly, however, he still resented President Truman's forcing change in the civil rights matter after his failed presidential bid in 1948. Thurman relished being near in succession to the highest national office as president pro tem of the Senate. And I will stop there. That is all from they stole him out of jail. Dr. Gravely, white man about the lynching of Willie Earl. Lynch law. They could uh, put it under his name as well. Uh, so the number, if folks have commentary to share, is 720-716-7300. The code 564943 pound press star six one if you have commentary until justice at gmail.com if you have emails thoughts you would like to send in until justice at gmail.com folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary proceed Hey, Gus, uh, Victor from New Jersey. I guess I'll set it off. Victim in New uh, Jersey, proceed. Okay. Okay, I'll just put down some notes. Um, raise money for the killers of uh, Willie Earl. Um, newspapers came to their defense. Um, just, it's, it's just similar today. You know, now, now we have GoFundMe. You know, and um, news publications such as Fox News and the New York Post um, seem to some way, somehow, um, 
exonerate um, white terrorists, um, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, attack the press like they attack they they attack the press, the North. Um, so the South during that time, the North was their adversaries. Today, um, it's uh, conservative liberal. It's not North and South. So just how the uh, South attacked um, North press. Um, we have uh, conservatives attacking white liberals. Um, it says the, gov- uh, the governor was standing up for black rights. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's just kind of like hard to believe and just kind of hypocritical, you know, being though that um, he was a staunch, uh, in staunch opposition to um, black civil rights. Um, she said we were black, but different. She made a uh, distinction between, um, I guess, good blacks, black, uh, good blacks, uh, bad blacks. Uh, made me remember Chris Rock, uh, black versus nigger, niggers. Uh, uh, she said that her that her, uh, her uh, dad, you know, so he. This is the first time he used the D word. Her dad. He was ashamed of the Willie Earl case. Um, I need more proof of of him being ashamed. She also said in the South, she said, we knew our place in Coltsville, but wasn't forced through the barrel of a gun. Well, to get you to that subjugation and you knowing your place, that did happen by the barrel of a gun during... um, as uh, the author of um, Sundown Towns would say, the Nadir period, uh, where they just basically um, terrorized uh, black people. Um, she said love affair. She used love affair uh, when she was saying that basically, uh, if I if, if if I get it correctly, you know, during that time, you know, she just wondered what it would be like but also was in fear that her father is found out about his love affair with, with her mother, um, you know, just basically about his safety. Um, I think if they would have found out back then, I think Strom Thurmond would have, like, I think he would have been, like, just just fine. I don't think that it would have been an issue. So, you know, that's what I, some of the things I jotted down for the book read. Um, that's all I got. Much obliged uh, victim in New Jersey, James Lowen, author of Sundown Towns. Uh, the late James Lowen passed away last year. Also, we read in that book club, read that in the book club. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Maybe heard Heard both of you. Uh, we'll get uh, caller at two two six two, and then we'll nab retired firefighter. Thank you, Gus, for taking my call. Um, uh, on page one ten, uh, she was um, one roommate was a nice girl from Columbia whose school teacher mother had been a, a graduate state, and uh, I wonder who her father might be. The other was a pretty girl from Jacksonville, Florida. Her father had extermination business. 
and she was quite fair. Um, there were many light-skinned girls. I was thinking um, what the Slave Coast, how so many um, white uh, suspected racist males uh, raped a bunch of black females and caused this um, whole color confusion amongst uh, non-white black people. Um, Oh, about, uh, I guess, uh, M.F. Whitaker. I was thinking since he was um, associated with W.E.B. Du Bois and he had such a um, a strict code about uh, the students uh, functioning and acting and uh, handling themselves in a much more professional way. I thought this was more of the uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, talented tenth uh, ideology. Um, the... Uh, a section about the fences being very tall, like a prison. Um, I was thinking that's a, uh, a well, she said it that white people were had less anxiety from that aspect, uh, like the notion that uh, black people must be uh, handcuffed and and uh, placed in some kind of confinement. So, you know, more white supremacist ideology. Um, uh, towards the end, when she was talking about when she um, saw, quote unquote, uh, her family on stage, I, I felt sorry for her, considering that, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure they knew that she existed, um, but they would never accept her. And, you know, I just thought the whole situation is sad, but uh, I'll mute my line for now. Thank you for taking my call. Much obliged. Just in terms of that uh, sexual confusion, that is non-white people throughout the entire world. They do a lot of that, especially when they have wars, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, all of their battles. Oh, the sexual confusion, all of the war babies that they leave amongst non-white people all over the world. So Richard Bernstein, the whole world as the white man's brothel white man and white woman it should be uh retired firefighter thank you for your patience sir yes sir greetings everyone uh first uh half for the most part was the uh beginnings and the uh uh her uh quote unquote what is called now hbcu experience <laughs> uh i'm i'm chuckling because I actually attended two uh, Langston University and uh, Grambling State University. Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, including the train ride, uh, which uh, she shouldn't be so surprised about it. Uh, she had been in that situation before and uh, should know what to expect. Uh the whole idea about the light-skinned females, that was uh, a part of a lot of the HBCUs. If she would have went to Howard, she would have saw the same thing. <laughs> uh, yes, as everybody was just saying, uh, white males, uh, unfortunately, uh, under a system of racist white supremacy, uh, spread their semen uh, a lot uh, and it was quite visible uh, as a result uh, 
and in that in that uh horrible makeup of non white people who are rich craft fighters black actually had developed a Stockholm syndrome to where it, it to be light skinned was actually admirable. Uh and in turn also uh as I heard somebody mention uh Dr. W. B. Dubois uh uh talented tenth that was also uh the uh during the time when she was in college it was still during that time when that quote unquote uh talented tenth primarily was at uh those institutions uh uh they were quite orderly it was quite orderly on the on the campus uh you know during that time just like she explained it uh and uh uh i would say yes as far as the profession of some of the parents she mentioned uh it, it it goes in line as far as my experiences uh as was told to me when i went to the campuses uh as far as history wise of course i was in a, another generation of a la- more latter generation of uh young people that went to historical black colleges uh but the the history background was explained to me similar to what she is saying um uh, and uh, you know, if you had, if your parent, a parents was something like a successful business owner, it was bound to be that way because, from the standpoint, uh, black people uh, who were were smart at business and whatever, they couldn't, they couldn't do it around mixing with white people with it. So whether he was in the quote unquote north or the south, you. Uh, you primarily uh, conducted your businesses uh, in the area where non-white black people were at. And it's bound to be some that was going to be what is classified as being successful. And in turn, because their child or children could not go to, even in the North in some cases, uh, uh, some some of the institutions, they ended up being at that time, we're talking about something like 1940, uh, HBCUs uh, was the place. Uh, whether you were from, and, and, and I don't know what she was talking about when she mentioned about Howard being being the North. That's, that's the South also, you know, as far as that concerned, uh, when it comes down to it. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, she's still, you know, confused. Uh, about uh, the situation. Uh, then again, you know, things are so horrible. You try to make, you try to. It, it, she, it, she actually is in a in a in a situation to where she can make fantasy because some of it is real. Her father is really a very powerful person, <laughs> but it, but it's not it's not in a constructive uh, sense, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, but, you know, to, I guess to get away with some of the, uh, some of the, the bad things you make up stuff, you know, and have these delusions 
and that going to movies and whatnot doesn't help the situation. Uh, it only adds on to it. Uh, and the idea of uh, thinking to herself about her father around the other female classmates uh, makes that more a promotion of the illusions in her, in her mind. And uh, those are just some of my thoughts in the first half. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, if I could take 30 seconds, I want to get our commentary in from one of our investors' written commentary. But whew. television, like we are not reading a book. Or let me put it this way. We're reading a book, the point where we're at right now, 1948. Ain't no YouTube, ain't no Netflix, Hulu, Amazon streaming, no cable. In fact, most people, most black people didn't even own a television in the late 1940s. This time, ask Mr. Fuller next time he's on talk tamer or what have you get a little bit of the history of television and the development just ask him did you own a television 19 late 1940s any black people that you know did they own a television and see what they say you all have grandparents and things see how many of them if they were around then if you have access ask them did you own a television in the 1940s even 1950s did you own a television and see even if they did television went off at that time you had maybe two three channels to pick from how much of an influence have you heard from television in the first half of this book from a time when there was not that much television to watch and it has had a huge impact on how she the analogies and metaphors how she relates to the world that's like 80 years ago you can watch television all day long now you can watch it on your watch everybody's got a TV in their back pocket or what have you and then oh my goodness now you really want to clown when you get home and you got a television that's the size of a wall that's the other thing too like yeah we do have a lot of uh, small screens Dr. Welsing talked about that but wow like now you got televisions the size of a wall so now it's not watching Gone with the Wind and seeing Scarlett O'Hare look tiny. You get to see her in your house about the same size she would have been at the movie theater. Now, if she was a plantation goddess then, wow, you can see her in HD. And she'll be the size of the entire wall in your house. Not to mention all the other white people that they got contemporaries. New goddesses, 21st century goddesses and gods reading more really anything more important than sitting around and watching television especially as a young person because that's been most of her experience she's in college now so 20 and under oh man you do not want to be allowing your young child all that tv and movie going time wow we don't even understand how much that impacts the developing brain computer and she wrote this book in the 21st century so this is not her talking about TV shows and movies that she loved right right now or within the past five years or even 
television stars. She's talking about TV programs and movies that she watched from like 60 years ago, 70 years ago in some instances by the time this book was published. We do not know the full scope of the impact of white supremacy entertainment. Turn off the television or better yet, if you're going to have offspring, try not even having a television in your house. Anywho, one of our investors wrote in chapter five. Number one, one roommate, very light skinned. She was quite fair. That word again, many light skinned women seemingly half the campus. I heard it stated that so-called HBCUs were in part created by suspected racists to provide college education for their non-white offspring. I'm not sure if this is accurate. I have heard that rumored as well. Certainly could be. Number two, President M.F. Whitaker. The fence was there for a reason. We had to be back by 5 p.m. This reminded me of the church bell rung at Princeton during the 1930s, calling all black children back home before dark in order to avoid potential assault by marauding suspected racist male undergraduates. C.D. Cow's Book Club, Einstein on Race and Racism by Fred Jerome and Roger Taylor. I reread that section today and they did use the word terror in describing all of this. Number three, I was called to the administration building, President Whitaker, Whitaker's office. Hello, Essie May, Strom Thurmond said. She could have gone to Harvard. Remember Dr. Bledsoe? Cal's Book Club, Invisible Man. I thought of that too many times, like all of this about the HBCU scene reminded me a great deal of uh, Invisible Man and Dr. Bledsoe and the seriousness of the students and all the rules and regulations and we can't upset the good white people around campus and Dr. North. Yes, Invisible Man for sure. Uh, number five, he once ran 18, mile, 18 miles, lost all his toenails. Best exercise there is. An example of the discipline and dedication required to dominate everything in the known universe. Number six, didn't give me any envelopes of money on these college trips. Bold for a man, gallant, chivalrous, daring. The governor-elect was a very cool customer. I was impressed how discreet the college president was. Thurman, the teacher, had a Ph.D. in the practice of white supremacy racism and how. Number seven, my father, his older brother and his sister, all unmarried, was a bizarre statistic in the South. I found this statement interesting, but not sure what to make of it. A result of their sexual deviancy, perhaps. Strom Thurman married like several times. I mean, I don't really, at least from my view, I would have to see if the others just married at later dates and what have you. But Strom Thurman married repeatedly and the deviancy, I mean, hey, why do I want to be married at 30 and 40 if I'm chasing around 15 and 20 year olds? Hey, marriage is for suckers. Uh, let's see. And then get to chapter six. I'll get to some of my notes and then we'll double check, see if other folks who called in have commentary. Uh, so she <laughs> black misandry said that at the very beginning, I was talking about the lynching of Willie Earl and then the very beginning and I mean the very first paragraph that we heard from the audio what did she say again what does Dr. Curry say in the man I, here we go again I saw the same bedraggled put that adjective on us bedraggled men loitering in stations the same tobacco and cotton fields the same sharecropper cabins unfit to live in how can that be? over and over and over and incidentally now if she, Essie May, is seeing all these bedraggled, down and out, loitering, unemployed, 
alcoholic black males all over the place from New York to South Carolina at what point did they organize and get their act together to get some black male privilege maybe we'll get that explained in the book as we proceed uh, she mentioned uh, the imposing First Baptist. I just had to double check because that's not the first 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 Baptist that we've heard in South Carolina. The other First Baptist, I'm sure there are many, uh, is in Camden, uh, where they decided to expel all the Negroes. We talked about that in The Bible Told Them So with J. Russell Hawkins, which is why we're reading this book in the first place. Uh, let's see. Next. She sees all the stores with the fried food. She says she can smell the hot grease fried chicken and shrimp. Then she sees all the white people eating grilled cheese sandwiches and milkshakes like my God, death on a plate like grease, fried chicken, grilled cheese and milkshakes. (laughs) You're going to be obese, cholesterol, hardened arteries, high blood pressure. All of these things I think they have in areas like South Carolina. If that's what you're eating on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. And Strom Thurmond, that's at least one thing he's been saying that the whole time. Like, what are you eating? All that fried foods? No, vegetables? And then to woof it down with all that dairy and cheese? Man. Uh, let's see. She was talking about the layout of the campus, South Carolina State. She said some called it Palladian after the Italian architect who inspired Jefferson Monticello, my alma mater, UVA. Another race soldier, child rapist, Sally Hemings. That's not a romance either. She said, I call it plantation. I thought she was going to put the AL on the word. Be like, oh, that's Gus T, plantational. Uh, Let's see. She talked about the demeanor of the students uh, at South Carolina State. They all seem much more grown up like business people and more than students. No one was throwing balls or clowning around or having fun. I quickly surmised that college, at least this college, was going to be a very serious enterprise i just contrast that with now we heard another memoir this year that talked about college life right alice siebold right that's not what she described at any she even went to ivory uh with the ivy league school upenn right she said she sees they got uh tattoo scrawlings graffiti on the elevator about gang rapes of a female got white guys outside all times a day loitering these aren't down and out no count black males these are just white college students loitering underage drinking clowning throwing the ball after everything that she said was not happening that's what was going down at UPenn. we're acting a fool ivy league school right near coatesville i bet you right near coatesville where they lynched zachariah uh, walker uh let's see she says one roommate was from columbia whose school teacher mother had been a graduate of state making her second generation in high class in the social scheme here she had very light skin i wonder who her father might be she has her in italics now just all of that like man if you got questions about how she got this pale complexion and to be second generation so i mean hey Essie May got in because she had a white man pull some strings, so-called, to get her in. Her white raping father pulled some strings. Now, how many folks, if you got all of these, what they call high yalla, how many of them, that's the case. They got a raping father. That's how they got this complexion. And that's how they got into the school in the first place. That's what it means. High class, having a rapist father. That's what it means. I can pass the brown paper bag test because I got a raping grandfather or raping father 
just processing, you know, trying to use logic, analyzing black history, so-called. Uh, she continued, she said she wore fancy clothes. She was quite fair. That's in the word guide. In fact, there were many light-skinned women seemingly half the campus. They were all talking about their fathers, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. No one mentioned janitors or porters and certainly not sharecroppers. And that was another one that gave me pause. Like, it could be that, you know, they have a lot of black males who are doing these things in the South, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. Or it could be that we got a lot of Strom Thurmonds. Could be a little bit of both. And even now, how many of these high yellow folks are confused like Essie May? And so the person that they think is their father is another John Henry Washington. Lots of deception. Uh, especially if you're telling me that there's so many black people, even our black family members who live in South Carolina and squalor and all this, how did all of this concentration of wealth end up with all of these strangely light-complexioned black people? Just questioning. She said... Uh, it made her proud all of the prosperity around her again now am i proud of the rapes that made all of this happen i also thought of neely fuller jr about that proud black and proud thing like yeah that's yeah uh let's see same thing i just said she says you know who my daddy is she was thinking of imagining saying he's the governor of this fair there's that word again fair state he's mr palmetto himself i would have loved to say in your face and that's a whole lot right there uh that mr fuller show offism that's what i'm a shot you know who who raped my mother saddest book that i've ever read um and then she has to come back same paragraph i was very grateful to my father for making it possible for me to come here to state I couldn't afford to lose the opportunity in front of me for me it was a state of grace whatever that means I can totally grasp the logic hey I see all these down and out bedraggled black people even some of them in my family absolutely I want to take every opportunity to better myself improve my quality of life so that that's not me if my raping white father is going to help do that for sure you take constructive help wherever you get it but I mean woof the confusion in all of this for Miss Essie May she continued, I think it was our investor who wrote in a couple of weeks back where he said, man, that is amazing. The word bunkum means a lie, a fabrication. And the family, the uh, Butler family and Thurman clan is from old bunkum. Not just bunkum, old bunkum. This is, these are some old lies. They've been telling and passing along for a long time. White people are ignorant about racism. Uh, let's see. She says, while there was clearly a lot of white blood in these girls' veins, I didn't want my white blood to become an issue that might interfere with my education. I suspect that's probably true, even though that would be a misnomer. It's not white blood. You just have white genetic material. Accurate way of saying it. even that is inaccurate because that suggests that there's something as a biological classification of white. And that is absolutely, I mean, this right here, that is absolutely not the case talk about old bunkum uh let's see the all of this like i said invisible man we read that one too cows book club on tuesdays and thursdays we were allowed off campus to go to the local movie theaters we were admonished to always sit in the balconies but at least we had the movies that was a relief now again that's why i said the power of television 
You can't even go down, pay your money and sit, you know, up close and really get a good look at all these white people. I got to go up in the nigger section, but at least we can go to the movies. Ooh. And watch and she's the, the movies that she's mentioned. At least we can go to the movies and watch Gone with the Wind. See Hattie McDaniel. <laughs> like, man, I mean, I don't know if we were in a similar situation and didn't have a television and our only options, we could go to the movies and sit in the nigger section in the balcony and watch the help. The butler. I don't think I'd be going to the movies. That's just all it would be. <laughs> like, I'm sure it's a wonder. It would have to be something like it's 106 degree heat and the movie theater has air conditioning. It would have to be that sort of thing. Like, oh, OK, let's go see the help <laughs> so we can at least we can get out of this misery for an hour or two. Like, if that's not the case, it's just a standard day. Or I have AC at my residence. I'm good. We just don't go to the movie theater, which is what I say now, 2022. Uh, She said on Saturdays, we could have dances, parties and so forth, but always on campus. We were grounded to avoid any incidents when all the white farmers and potential Ku Klux Klan types would come to town for their big night out. That is so, you know. And really, it's normally the other way around where the college students are causing such mischief, mischief and pranks and shenanigans that you got to watch out for them. It's the other way around here where the white adults go out and acting a fool on the weekends. The white clan members and other similar organizations. Now that even. How many racist clans do you need? Um, she says there was absolutely no need for the fence, despite what our white neighbors must have dreaded. I don't believe that the white neighbors dreaded any of these Negro students. We got all the guns. Our legacy of Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, later Dylan Stormroof. I don't think they were afraid of any of these little nigger children. They just like to, to lie and put that out there that, oh, my God, the threat of Negro domination. And, oh, what are we going to do? And raping Negroes and rah, 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 they're going to get us all this Willie Earl. All of that is a lie. Justification for Willie Earl. Uh, they're at a white founded historically black institution so-called and they say we were never asked to read and analyze uncle tom's cabin a book written by a white woman the civil war was not portrayed as a battle over slavery but rather one of economics of agriculture versus industry now i mean now we already had one of our callers i think calling new jersey uh sitting there they got the lynching later on it's talked about as north versus south here is agriculture versus industry no it's white supremacy racism we're just having a disagreement about how that's going to be practiced but that is the only thing that we're talking about in any of these situations how is a lynching about anything other than white supremacy racism and how it's going to be practiced the confusion you see that the confusion that's the same confusion at a historically black college in historically black colleges and universities you can't talk about racism white supremacy dr welsing encountered that S.E. May encountered that. We can't even talk about honestly about Uncle Tom's cabin. The Civil War, we got to sit here and lie and say the Civil War wasn't about racism. It wasn't about keeping the niggers as slaves. It was about agriculture versus industry. What? The industry is niggers worldwide. Uh, importantly, now, take that the very next paragraph. She says the students didn't seem interested in changing the world, only in improving their private worlds. The main focus was on career and marriage. Now, also keep in mind as well. Hey, she already said it seemed like a good chunk of these students might have had a white parent, white grandparent, something that also, I think, would heavily influence. Now, how revolutionary am I going to be? 
You see that in Essie May. We've been reading that now for about four weeks. Let's see. She said she wasn't very interested in learning the optimal way to can peaches. That just was a big thing during uh, the whole pandemic because people have been doing canning or, or attempting to. And they said they've been running out of lids uh, because it's a whole science to how you can correctly. That's a serious thing. You don't want to get botulism, food poisoning and all that. Uh, so they said they've been running out of the lids to even do canning correctly over the pandemic. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go again. The t- retired firefighter, the influence of the big screen. She says in my spare time, I naturally that's even important. Naturally. The default is I'm going to watch television on the big screen. In fact, I naturally went to the movies, not caring much where I sat. Whenever the screen lit up with the likes of Gary Cooper, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, all suspected race soldiers. And I suspect they were all mentioned in Woody Alley's biography that we read on the program just months back. I said, that's like the golden age of white supremacy entertainment. He mentioned all these folks. Uh, the postman always rings twice. Lana Turner, that's uh, Jack Nicholson, are uh, right there with watching uh, all of the white people's romance and sex. Now, again, this is an, black people are being lynched on a regular basis. This is like seven years before Emmett Till is even killed. I don't care what they're showing. I just want to go watch any white people on the screen. Let's go watch. That idea, that thinking is still super prevalent 80 years later to our detriment because it's just absorbing white supremacy content white supremacy content anti-black content all the time Hattie McDaniel to the slap Uh, let's see She talks about the cheerleaders at the HBCU. She said the big men on campus were the football players bring damage and the top girls were the cheerleaders who were always the girls with the, there is that word again, fairest complexions. In those days, the closer you were to white, the classier and more beautiful you were considered, which is what the word fair means as well as justice. And again, the folks who got all this pale skin it's because of a rape and it might be because of a child rape that's classy raping children that's classy Jeffrey Epstein maybe I don't know Prince Andrew maybe I don't know what does classy mean think about that for a little while let's see she says uh, oh my god talk about that the saddest book I have ever read. So Strom Thurmond comes to visit her at South Carolina State. So she's, what does the college know? What does he think about us? Like what, you know, she's nervous, you know. He says, uh, I told him that you're a dear family friend from Edgefield, that your family helped my family for a long time, that we're really all one family, which is true, isn't it? Strom Thurmond grinned at me. I wasn't sure if it was a conspiratorial grin or a loophole grin or a happy to see you grin what in the hell I don't even know what that what is a conspiratorial grin what is a loophole grin I don't know what that is at all I don't even have a guess a happy to see you go what what you told him what not just oh yeah this is my nigger child yeah what are you gonna do Oh, this is family for nigger help. You know, she's been 
working in the slave shacks for our family long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Black self-respect is zero. Now, I have no idea how you're going to be really anything confident in how you step in the world, how you feel about yourself. This is my parent. This is how they acknowledge me to the world. And I have to co-sign on this. Saddest book I've ever read. Uh, she says, uh, walk every chance you get. He tells her, stay off the buses. Now, I do the walking exercise. Phenomenal, especially if you're going to eat fried chicken and grilled cheese sandwiches and milkshakes all day long. Yeah, you're going to need to do a whole lot of walking. Maybe get some fruits and vegetables while you're out walking um, and stay off the buses. Now, I too thought that was like, what is this? Some like racial, like Negro, you say all these buses. They're for white people. Like, I didn't even know how to process that. Like, what? It's hot in South Carolina. Like, I'm not trying to be walking around in the summertime or the spring, likely, uh, in South Carolina. Like, let me, uh, I'm getting some type of transportation. <sighs> Saddest book I've ever read. Uh, and he lies all the time. He's sitting here talking about Soul Blatt, and he says he's a politician. You know, he's what you call a real politician. He cared more about his cronies than, you know, the state of South Carolina. He's a real politician. I'm just an amateur. Are you sick? Kid? You're a lying child rapist. How about that? Amateur. Uh, let's see. She says. Uh, so her dad, Strom Thurmond, is talking about in South Carolina. If you're talented, you can write your own ticket. And she says she's thinking but not if you're a good and talented black person I'm used but it was a bad thought I don't even know what that means it's accurate true today even still here I was in South Carolina getting my dream of a college education who was I to be greedy to be ungrateful Rome wasn't built in a day was it I don't even know how that metaphor applies here but I mean I'm just asking do all of us have to be out loitering? Do I, every time I come to South Carolina for years and years and years, I just got to see black males stacked up and poor and homeless and loitering? Well, Rome wasn't built in a day. I don't want to be greedy. I'm here at the nigger school and I'm learning and I'm my dad's, uh, what does he call it? Friend of the family help? Yeah. Saddest book I've ever read. Um. Mm-mm-mm. Clemson was a military school. I have to go back to check, but I think we've read that in the book club. Uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. I think Clemson and the Citadel, these institutions have origins as military schools because of the system of white supremacy. And specifically in South Carolina, they had so many Negroes during the plantation period of white supremacy racism. Every white man had to have a gun. So they needed you got Gabriel Prosser and things happening like that down in South Carolina. So we got to have white men on alert. Denmark Vesey on alert, paying attention. If the Negroes get out of control, whammo, be at the ready. So I think that was in Pitchfork Ben Tillman's biography that we read 2015, uh, that that is the reason Clemson had military service that uh, J. Strom Thurmond has fond memories of. I'll have to double check to verify um. oh man saddest book ever she says I did find it rather bold for a man of his position to risk all kinds of scandal didn't they make a TV show out of that with the same theme 
by coming to see me, it was so gallant. It was chivalrous. It was daring. I loved it. What woman wouldn't respond to a great man taking such great risks for her? Are you serious? What risk did he take? James Henry, John Henry Washington, excuse me, John Henry Washington. Remember him way back early in the book when she thought he was her black father who dipped out? Remember when he talked about getting a rifle to go protect a black prisoner who he thought was going to be lynched like Zachariah Walker? That is taking a great risk because they could have killed him and his entire family. That's taking a risk. This child raping racist going to an HBCU and hiding in a room to see his nigger offspring. That is not a great risk at all. And I mean, you can stretch your imagination big time. I have no idea what universe that is a risk. And again, as she stated, it seems like you got a whole lot of these high yellow students here who might be the spawn of these child rapes. If that's the case, what sort of trouble is Strom Thurmond really going to get in? It's widely reported that this was a poorly protected secret that many people knew this because many white people have been doing this for a long time, like centuries, old bunkum, as they say. So, I mean, really, all this is is confusion, tragic, and it just gets worse when she gets to her mother. Um, my connection to my father was hardly fatherly. However, it remained as distant when I had visited him with my two or just all of that. No connection to you. And then you got two mothers. What? Who are you? Who has two mothers? How do you have two mothers? Oh, confusion and rape. Uh, she said our surface dealings were precisely that all superficial and completely unemotional despite my inner turmoil. I mean, who has that? That's your connection to your father. Father Hunger, Janetta Rose Barris. That's why I put that in real early so we can have that in mind throughout the reading of this text. Um, when she says that she was concerned about maybe some rumors starting, people finding out about her dad, some of her classmates. But she says, on the other hand, my classmates were so ladylike and well-mannered that I doubt they would have done anything to make me feel uncomfortable. Pause. It could be that so many of her classmates had the exact same situation with it if you live in a glass house i don't throw stones like man who knows who their white father is i don't have nothing to say about this like man it's getting a little too close to home i could be wrong incidentally mr fuller said he got that from a film from this era that's from uh, rick blaine from casablanca that's world war ii film everything is connected uh let's see then we got that fair again governor now Strom Thurmond was someone who wanted to replace the racist good old boys with something fair and just Miss Essie May is so confused Uh, a lot of my talk about confusion a lot of my female high yellow classmates talked about how young and handsome the new governor was I was careful not to brag myself ugh but I had to agree with them despite his lack of hair. He was tall and fit and for 44, quite a striking and vibrant man, masculine and powerful. Every inch the soldier, now the statesman. This is a child raping racist. At 66, he married a 22 year old. 
this actually reminded me of O.J. Simpson. Remember how they talked about Mark Furman? He was a heartthrob and a hunk and sexy and dashing. Mm. That's how we've been conditioned. And incidentally, Strom Thurmond might look like some of these high yalla students' fathers. That might be why they find him so dashing and attractive. I may be in error. Let's see. How many times we've had so many times in this book where white people have been referred to as gods, lords. Uh, she sits from the movies again when she's talking about Strom Thurmond's mother at the governor's uh, where he's being inaugurated. Uh, she says that Gertrude Strom Thurmond, Eleanor Gertrude Strom Thurmond, uh, she was the antithesis of the Scarlet O'Hara plantation goddess. She's not just an actress. She's not just a woman. She is a goddess. I am woman, not man, not you are a white goddess. And she called Strom Thurmond a lord. Jesus. Uh, Gertrude was scary, formidable. I would have bet my life she didn't have a clue about my mother. False. I think that's <laughs> anyone is confused about racism is Gus T. Essie May and the rest of us Negras. She looked as if she would have killed her son if she had. Small wonder he found comfort in the arms of my mother, who was nothing like his own. All I can say is I think these white this white woman knew her children probably her husband too been doing this for generations i'm not ignorant about all y'all if essie may was aware as a teen all these uh thurman boys are flirting with me and flirting with all these other folks and everything i'm sure the mother is not ignorant about this i'm here i got eyes i can see i raised them i married one father her father probably doing the same thing she got brothers cousins white people cannot be ignorant about racism. Uh, She said the rest of my father's family, my family was standing behind him, his two tall brothers, his three sisters. I had seen only one before the lady who had brought the envelope of money to us in old bunkum. She just keeps (laughs) lies and lies and lies. Jesus. Uh, And both brothers, John William II and Alan George, two gynecologists, J. Marion Sims. His statue is still up in South Carolina and Alabama. They took it down in Central Park in New York finally after years of protest. Uh, True colors, she said, South Carolina showed its true colors with the lynching of Willie Earl. True colors, along with fair, is in Mr. Fuller's word guide. He recommends not using either of those terms. I think the caller talked about the thousands of dollars that were donated. That would probably be like a million dollars with the inflation calculator in today's money. Uh, She says, furthermore, the state newspaper declared Willie Earl guilty without a trial. The paper simply presumed he was the murderer and would have been executed. Anyhow, all the mob did was save South Carolina the cost of a public execution. Wow. They could do that now. Right. I was just saying, man, our timing. They just reported this week, days ago, South Carolina is going to the execution squad. (laughs) We got all this controversy and the electric here. We can't be doing Sue Logue anymore. And medical companies don't want to give us the medications to do folks uh, to execute people via pills or what have you. So firing squad will go old school. 
getting medieval on you, as she said in the book. I'm so glad I do not live in South Carolina. I've only been there briefly. Uh, we got Delectable Negro with Willie Earl. He gets dragged, pistol whip, stabbed, shot, cut to pieces. They probably got pieces of him in people's attic right now. Uh, the trial was a legal circus that galvanized the country like the Orenthal James Simpson trial. It is his world. We're all just hanging out. Uh, as it went, the white people of South Carolina got more and more protective of their own. Sympathy mounted for the cab drivers forced to pick up dangerous Negroes to earn a living in these depressed post-war years. Most of the accused cabbies had been World War II veterans, and this was the thanks they were getting for defending their nation. We talked about this so much. Black uh, troops coming back and being abused. Oh my God. She said after the verdict, the band played Dixie. Anyone who's listened to the cows for any length of time, there should be no question like, wow, why does Gusty, why has he played that song over and over and over and over for years? How many times does that song come up? The theme song of white supremacy racism, at least for this part of the world. No question. Uh, let's see. She said they were warned to stay away from town for days. She said, I was scared for a while, but it passed. What scared me even more was the apathy of most of my fellow students. Again, that is less surprising if they have a lot of white parents. The others just let it slide. They didn't discuss the horror of the lynching. They didn't express relief that the governor, my father, who was standing up for black rights. They assumed, wait a minute, let me get more. Like most of white South Carolina, the state students tended to assume Willie Earl was a drunk, a bad seed who had committed a crime he shouldn't have and paid the price. It was a southern price, but he lived here and he should have known better. This would have happened. This wouldn't have happened to a state student. They did have that Orangeburg massacre a little while later. But anyway, uh, we were too smart. We were too good. We were destined for success. We were black, but we were different. Man, oh man. Anybody who's been listening, Cal's been on for 13 years. The Oreo experience. Remember, she had that term called regular black people. Us Oreos, we're not like you regular black people who don't know how to behave. Last little tidbit that I will include before we get back. Oh, God. Last little tidbit I'll include before we get that whole D word passage. I have to talk about that once we get back. This is from an article on uh, that was written by a white woman in the summer of 1947. She came from Europe to cover the trial. It was in the New Yorker, uh, New Yorker. Uh, it's called a lynching in Greenville. You can read it. I posted it online. It is fascinating. I'm just going to give you a quick tidbit and it relates to what. Uh, Miss Essie May just wrote about the state students and then we'll get to the second audio clip. So she writes, it happened that the only constructive proposal concerning this morass of misery stretching out to infinity around this case that I heard during my stay in Greenville came from a Negro that oddly enough was a plea for the extension of the Jim Crow system. There is nothing I wish for more, he said, than a law that would prohibit Negroes from riding in taxi cabs driven by white men they love to do it we all love to do it can't you guess why because it is the only time we can pay a white man to act as a servant to us and that does something to me even though I can check on I can check up on myself and see what's happening I say to myself this 
is fine. I'm hiring this white man. He's doing a chore for me. He threw his head back and breathed deeply and patted his chest to show how he felt. If riding in a white taxi cab does that to me, what do you think it does to Negroes who haven't been raised right or are full of liquor? Willie Earl was accused of being drunk when this happened. Then queer things happen. Mighty queer things. Killing is only one of them. It is apparently the practice in many other southern towns, such as Savannah, that whites use only taxis with white drivers and Negroes use only taxis with Negro drivers. I thought that was fascinating and super believable in the system of white supremacy because now we've heard basically the same sentiment two times. Once from a white author, once from a non-white author who does have a white co-author. But I totally believe that and Ida B. Wells Barnett said the same thing. So man, we don't you hear that now? Where people will find that Eric he was out Eric Garner was out there selling, slanging Lucy's, you know. Couldn't behave himself. Jonathan Crawford in there twirling a gun around. He knows better. Out there acting a fool. At least I hear this all the time. Audio segment two from S.E. May Washington Williams. Dear Senator, the saddest book I've ever read. Let me give one more. Why is this the saddest book I've ever read? Being the governor's daughter felt good indeed just knowing I had a father felt good. What in the hell? Saddest book I have ever read. No contest. If you have additional thoughts, jot them down. We will have time once we are finished with audio segment two. Dear Senator, context of white supremacy. Chapter six, Heart of Dixie. When I returned to Orangeburg in September 1947, the Willie Earl issue had helped to polarize the nation and send whites of South Carolina back to their barricades. President Truman was more than infuriated by the farce of Southern justice. He said so when he addressed the NAACP in Washington that summer, and he devoted his energies to his President's Committee on Civil Rights, which issued a scathing and revolutionary report that fall, entitled To Secure These Rights. It declared Truman's war on discrimination, but below the Mason-Dixon line, it was the South that felt that war had been declared on all that it held dear. Truman was demanding that Congress enact sweeping legislation protecting black people at the polls, in schools, at work, in their travels, and in the military. As I rode that awful hot and muggy seaboard railways segregated coach down to Columbia, I had a feeling I would be traveling in air-conditioned comfort and plush seats in the not-too-distant future. Again at State, it was college as usual. I was rushed for a sorority, which is where most of the social life took place for sophomores, sophomores and older. The two top Greeks, as we call them, were Alpha Kappa Alpha and Delta Sigma Theta. I was honored that both came courting me especially since good grades and college achievement were even more important 
in these black sororities than looks and style. They wanted leaders, as the Greeks were active in lots of charity work and tutoring in the community, not merely giving parties. I chose the Deltas, who were known for maintaining the highest grade average on campus. The initiation was anything but brainy. I would have to walk to class a certain way around campus for a week, two steps forward, one step back. The Delta walk looked spastic. That was the point. Then my new sisters fed me what they said were slithery, slimy, and nasty worms. This test of my loyalty and sisterhood, not to mention my constitution, was in truth cold spaghetti. Once the hijinks were over, I got back to my studies. I took more American history. We were entering dramatic times, I sensed, and I wanted to be armed with knowledge. I also discovered men, or they discovered me. Being in the sorority gave me a new confidence, a sense of belonging that being the governor's daughter did not. The sorority was all positive reinforcement, and it made me sure of myself. Furthermore, to earn extra spending money, I took a series of clerical jobs on campus. On Sundays, my friends and I attended the local Presbyterian church because the preacher there gave the best sermons. I was busy all the time, and that served to enhance my self-esteem. The first person at Orangeburg I began dating was a man in every sense of the word. At 25, Matthew Perry was five years older than I was. He was what you would call a big man on campus. I met him through a girl in my sorority, one day outside the temporary barracks, military-style Quonset huts that had been put up to house the male students. There was a glut of students after the war and nowhere for them to sleep. The school graciously gave the nice old dorms to the women, while the men basically camped out or slept on cots in the gym. The girl was a beauty, and no sooner than we started talking together, she ran off and Matthew ran after her, leaving me all alone. Sometime later, he tracked me down at the library. I didn't want to speak to him, but he persisted, explaining that the girl was an epileptic, like poor Willie Earl, and when she ran off, Matthew was worried she was about to have a seizure and went to her aid. Matthew and I joked about the inauspicious way we met, and we quickly hit it off. Matthew was just back from the service and seemed very mature. What attracted me most about him was his voice, a mellow, soothing baritone. He often spoke at student assemblies, and he mesmerized me, just like the Presbyterian minister. I have a weakness for voices, and Matthew had the best. He was from Columbia and planning to be a lawyer, which was a good career choice for a man with a voice that could surely sway juries. Matthew was also the first politicized man I had met at school. He was a member of the NAACP, which had an office somewhere in the black part of Orangeburg, far away from campus. The college itself never would have permitted it for fear of losing its state funding. The NAACP in Southern White Eyes was more than just black. It was subversive, Yankee, communist, any bad thing the whites could throw at it. They reacted to the NAACP the way we blacks reacted to the Ku Klux Klan. Matthew hardly seemed like a firebrand. He was cool and authoritative, and he was seeking justice, just as I felt my father was. I never, ever mentioned to Matthew or anyone else my genealogy, though I'm sure it would have given us endless things to talk about. 
In any event, he was positive about Governor Thurman as the best we could hope for in the state we were in. Matthew might have been the man of my dreams, or any girl's dreams. He would go on to become the first black federal judge and one of the preeminent jurists in the country. However, I met another man, whom I fell head over heels for, Julius Williams from Savannah. He was in the top fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. He was also extremely handsome, tall, with olive skin and wavy hair. He once had flirted with me outside the library. He often sat on the bench outside, smiling at the ladies as they went to study. They all liked him and smiled back, but not I. I didn't want to be like all the others. One day Julius said to me, Hey, stuck up. I think I glared at him. I finally got to know him at an alpha dance where I had a date with one of his fraternity brothers. Julius pulled rank on him, and the other alpha inexplicably took ill and left me to Julius, in whose arms every girl at the party wanted to be. Julius was 28, a war hero who had just come back from the Marine Corps in the Pacific. He had thrilling stories about Iwo Jima, Leyte Gulf, Corregidor, and other battles. Unlike other students at State, Julius was completely self-made. His father had a trucking business. His mother was blind. He had come to Orangeburg as a pre-med student with plans to go to Harvard Medical School. He would be my own Dr. Lewis Wright. I had all this nursing experience we could talk about, but he seemed to find interest in whatever I had to say. We were both serious students and loved studying in the library, then going for walks to discuss what we each had learned. It was a true campus romance, and it was the happiest I had ever been. My father came to visit me that fall when I returned to campus. It was a very short stay. We continued to meet in the president's office with his chauffeured black convertible parked outside the administration building. He wanted to know if I had had a good summer. He did not ask about my mother, which I found unusual, if not rude. I wanted to tell him how badly he was hurting her by not being in touch, but I didn't. I had no idea what might have gone wrong between them, aside from the obvious futility of the relationship. He was a grand and busy leader. Who was I to pester him about affairs of the heart when he had affairs of the state to attend to? He never asked about my social life. That was too personal for him. I believe you've been eating better, SMA, he noted. You look thinner. Not you look lovely, but you look thinner, which meant that before, as I suspected, he thought I was fat. I was relieved that boys were noticing me now. If they weren't, I might have been devastated. The governor wished me a good school year and gave me a hug, which I couldn't help but treasure. Then he left, and the big car rolled away. There was nobody around us to observe or so I thought. This time, unlike last school year, the rumors began. Governor Thurman had come to visit a girl on campus. The girl was his daughter. Who was that girl? That was the big campus guessing game that fall. Luckily, my name never came up as one of the candidates. The one who did was a sorority sister of mine named Lizzie Mae Thompson, who happened to be the whitest girl on campus. Poor Lizzie Mae. Everybody knew it had to be her, and it drove her crazy that no one would believe her disclaimers. I would have liked to come to her rescue, but all I could do was play the part of the Sphinx and keep the riddle all to myself. 
I focused on my classes and on my newfound romantic life. Then another romance almost derailed my own. My father, I found out, had fallen in love. It came with a photo in The State of my father with a stunning, very young lady at an October football game between Furman College and the University of South Carolina. The headline read, Governor to Wed. Wed whom? I was puzzled. Then I realized that this homecoming queen on his arm was to be my stepmother. Her name, according to the paper, was Jean Crouch. And she was indeed a beauty queen, having served as last April's Azalea Festival, Miss South Carolina, in Charleston. She was 21 years old, less than a year older than I was, and she had just graduated from Winthrop College, an all-women's school in Rock Hill. She was currently working as the governor's assistant. Today, it would be sexual harassment. In 1947, it was still very scandalous. A 46-year-old governor and his 21-year-old aide. I was appalled. Appalled that he had abandoned my mother for this child. Appalled that she wasn't that different from me. It made me feel creepy, having sat and been so close with a man, my father, who was now marrying a woman my age. There were endless photos of Jean Crouch in the papers in the weeks ahead. She was from Barnwell County, home of the Barnwell ring my father hated so much. An honor student, Jean had won the sole black medal for her academic prowess. At Winthrop College, she was preparing to become a teacher, just like me. She was active in church, just like me. The main difference was that she was white, or at least whiter than I was, but not that much. Yes, she was pretty, in a fresh girl-next-door way, but there was no way she was as beautiful, as radiant as my mother. I prayed the news didn't get to Philadelphia. It would destroy my mother to see this, just as it was destroying me. I took it out on Julius. I wanted so badly to share my pain with him. I wanted even worse to tell the whole world and derail this marriage, which I easily could have done as long as I was willing to pay the price of ruining my own life. In those days, they didn't have student psychiatrists, certainly not at state. I surely could have used one, though. I would have probably been too paranoid about divulging my secret to tell a doctor, patient privilege notwithstanding. Luckily for me, Julius was very understanding and didn't demand an explanation for my change in behavior. He didn't press me, but he was always standing by. When the lovebirds married in early November, barely weeks after the engagement bombshell announcement, it seemed like a shotgun wedding. I was beside myself with pain. I couldn't believe my father hadn't called on me, or at least called me, to tell me what he was doing. I didn't expect him to ask my permission, but as his daughter, I felt he owed me and my mother an explanation. Obviously, he was too ashamed. I resigned myself to never seeing him again. The wedding was at the Elko Baptist Church in the Barnwell Hamlet where the Crouches lived. The press picture showed my father looking resplendent in a tuxedo, his bachelor brother by his side as best man. The bride looked perfect in her white satin gown. I read that there were 26 relatives at the private ceremony. Too bad the groom's daughter couldn't have been one of them. It didn't matter. That was one invitation that I would have refused. The newlyweds were off to Miami and Havana for their honeymoon. Before they left, 
Life magazine did something to help me get even with my father. They took his picture, standing on his head, wearing nothing but white boxer shorts, black socks, and wingtip shoes. Behind him beamed his bride in a sweater and shorts, sitting on a bicycle. It looked like he had pulled off his pants to show off to the photographer. The caption read, Virile Governor. It was as undignified a shot as one could imagine, a politician's worst nightmare, especially one like my father, who had been widely called the Southern Roosevelt, who always insisted on being above reproach. Here was the man who wouldn't be seen in the hotel lobby with me, standing on his head in his underpants. Rather than retreating into the shadows until the storm of ridicule blew over, my father came out swinging. Adding to the, his list of wrongs in my book, Strom Thurmond now became a white supremacist. Just a year before, he was improving our schools, giving us the vote, prosecuting our tormentors, looking out for us. Suddenly, after his marriage, Governor Thurmond began a political about-face. He became an outright racist, cloaked in the ancient doctrine of states' rights. There was nothing Rooseveltian at all about this. He had said Franklin Moses had been brainwashed by the Yankees during Reconstruction. Now it appeared that Strom Thurmond had been brainwashed, if not by the Ku Klux Klan, then by the ghost of Pitchfork Ben Tillman. He would have laid the blame on President Truman, who in Strom Thurmond's mind might have experienced some mind alteration himself. The good old farm boy from Missouri had somehow become a lefty. Strom Thurmond, as if to show off for his young wife once again, took it upon his athletic shoulders to stand up for the honor of the South, just as the Confederates had done at Fort Sumter a century before. In the process, he lost sight of all the hope he had given to black people, all the good he had promised to do. Strom Thurmond's conversion came at the Southern Governor's Con Conference in Tallahassee, Florida, in February 1948. The main issue of the meeting was supposed to be the improvement of black university education in the region, but Harry Truman had created an emergency that had to be responded to. The president had given an address to Congress on civil rights, the first of its kind in American history. He called for a permanent congressional commission on civil rights and a civil rights division in the Department of Justice. Truman was standing up for blacks like no one since Abraham Lincoln, and actually far more than the great emancipator. Southern whites responded by bombarding the White House with hate mail. Be the Southerner you, that you are, they exhorted him. Be a man. You wouldn't want your lovely daughter, Margaret, stuck in a Pullman car with a dirty, smelly, savage, angry Negro, would you, Mr. President? Such was the tone of the letters cited in the papers. And the Southern governors went as wild as their constituents. Strom Thurmond declared that South Carolina, for one, was ready to fight. Because this year, 1948, was an election year, and the Republican frontrunner, Governor Thomas Dewey of New York, was emerging as the favorite, Truman needed all the help from the Democratic solid South that he could get. Now standing on principle over civil rights, it appeared that Truman had permanently alienated the South and slit his own throat politically. At the governor's conference, my father put a gun to Harry Truman's head. He sponsored a motion giving the president 40 days to rethink his position and back off from it. He denounced Truman's proposed civil rights measures as 
anti-American, and by implication denounced the black population Harry Truman was out to protect. The South Carolina NAACP issued a statement as to how disappointed they were with their governor. My father responded by publicly removing President Truman's photograph from his office wall. Truman stabbed the South in the back, he told reporters. In Washington, D.C., at a Democratic fundraising dinner, the senator from South Carolina, Olin Johnston, led a boycott when they found out that black leaders would be seated at their table. The behavior of these powerful politicians was both childish and sinister at the same time. When Truman did not cower under the Thurman ultimatum, my father's response was to up the ante of his racist rhetoric. He helped organize a states' rights convention in Mississippi, which, as the press described it, was more akin to a Klan rally. With the big band playing Dixie after every speaker, my father called for a total repudiation of the Truman wing of the Democrats and the recognition and respect due to the South by the great party of Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, slave owner, intellectual. The governor dredged up the wrongs of Reconstruction, denouncing the freed slaves as a millstone around the neck of the South. Echoing the pitchfork, my father said the only progress Negroes had made was because of the generosity and tolerance of their former masters. Strom Thurmond defended segregation laws as essential to the racial protection and purity of the white and Negro races alike. I wasn't sure if this was my father talking or the ghost of Adolf Hitler. With his perfect-looking wife always at his side in photographs and newsreels, I kept thinking of Eva Braun, who was far less a public accessory than Jean Crouch Thurman. What was my stepmother thinking? Of course, she was one of them, the white Southerners that my father was playing to, so she probably was not as appalled as I was, or I'm sure my mother would have been. If the South had been stabbed in the back by Harry Truman, my mother and I and the blacks of South Carolina had been stabbed in the back by Strom Thurmond. In keeping with their traditional political apathy, the students at State didn't seem to feel at all betrayed by the bizarre regression of their supposedly progressive governor. Perhaps they expected nothing of any white Southern politician, and hence were not surprised, or at least not as surprised as I was. For all my father's racist histrionics, there was virtually no discussion of it on campus. They're trying to make sure they keep that money. Like, uh, we're not talking about nothing upset this good white governor of this good state. My goodness. Anywho, uh, the number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have commentary. Uh, we'll pick up there in Chapter 6 next Thursday. Uh, the email again, until justice at gmail.com. Uh, I'll get in some of the quick comments from, or actually I'll go to folks who dialed in. Uh, if you have commentary, star six one. If you have thoughts to share, do not wait until the last minute. If you have commentary you would like to add in, let's see, uh, retired firefighter in Florida, uh, two, two, six, two. You are both with us. Other folks, if you have commentary, Star 6-1. Uh, do you all have any thoughts on what we heard, second audio segment, or anything left over from the first portion? Yes, sir. Uh, there was always a uh, relationship uh, with uh, the uh, quote-unquote white Democrats 
in the north as well as the south. Uh, matter of fact, they were the 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 Southern Democrats had a nickname. Uh, well, what I just identified as a nickname called Dixiecrats. Uh, the white Democratic uh, representative would, in front of black people, basically be deceptive uh, in some terms, although during that time most black people were Republican anyway. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, they started being a little bit more deceptive uh, in the uh, as after World War II. Uh, they started being a little bit more deceptive pretending that they were doing some things uh, such as uh, Truman and later uh, Eisenhower and, and Kennedy, uh, but uh, they had relationships with the Dixiecrats to be able to get or stay elected. Uh, they always had a relationship with them. Uh, basically, they let them do what they wanted to do in those places, uh, such as uh, what uh, was talking about talked about uh, earlier with the uh, lynching of the uh, the black male, uh, uh, they would act like the northern place with north northern politicians would act like they're doing something about it, but normally the same results would come up uh, that sort of thing. Also, uh, another understanding that I have is during that time it still was uh, the more uh, higher income uh, non-white black people that was going to those institutions because they were the only ones that could really afford it but as uh, black people started becoming more aware uh, uh from a lot, from a uh, a uh, uh, academic standpoint, the global system of racist white supremacy, and attempted to start actively doing something about it. Uh, in turn, uh, the white, the more refined white supremacists uh, would uh, create situations to whereas other non-white black people can go to those institutions. Uh, it wasn't that long before uh, 1947, 1948, we're talking about 20 years, uh, that resulted in the uh, type of students that was at South Carolina State uh, in the late 1960s were a lot different from the students that she is describing. Uh, and, it, and I was at one of those schools about eight years after the late 60s. And uh, certainly, they were certainly uh, different as far as uh, an understanding, a better understanding of racism, what it is and how, how it works. Uh, and uh, students were taking action. I put it that way. Students were taking action. I won't, I won't explain the full fullness of the uh, Orangeburg massacre, but uh the bowling alley that was right down the street from the school, they decided to do something about it, so to speak. Uh which probably
never happened uh, first time in school. Uh, but those are some of the things that how situations uh, changed, I put it that way, uh, from the time that she was in school to to today. And uh, those are my thoughts. Thank you. Much obliged. Retired firefighter in Florida. I haven't peeked ahead. She might even talk about that in the book. We'll have to see. I know two huge events that happened in that time period to change thing. The lynching of Emmett Lewis Teal and then the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Those two events at minimum. There were other things as well, but those two events were enormous in producing that change that happened at HBCUs in about little over a decade, about 13 years. Uh, our other caller uh, who dialed in with a hand up, did you have commentary to share with us, 2262? Yes, sir. Thank you for uh, letting me speak again. Um, I just had a couple, I guess, things I want to point out that was interesting to me. Um, on page 112, um, uh, the third from the last paragraph, uh, the discipline seemed more suited to West Point or Annapolis than, rather than a college, and West Point and Annapolis are military schools, if I'm not mistaken. Then I I'm, I'm also saw on page 118, um, the first paragraph, uh, he also told me how Clemson was a military school when he went there. Um, so I just thought, um, as far as uh, uh, Clemson with the white people that I guess they're fighting to maintain white supremacy and at um, state, I guess, uh, we're fighting to be a part of it, uh, considering, uh, I guess, these students wanted more of a, an assimilation uh, ideology. And uh, lastly, on um, page 125, uh, the second to last paragraph, uh, Carrie said, as drained of hope as I had seen her, and I'll move on to the last page, um, uh, well, from last chapter, 126. Love had made her happy, and now the loss of that love was making her physically sick. Um, and in the code book, love has a definition of making sure no one is mistreated and those that need the most help get the most constructive help. I don't think that's love, but that is it, and I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. What love got to do with it? Tina Turner. I didn't see her uh, recent biopic, but hey, man, put a definition on it that makes sense in the context of white supremacy racism. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, our investor wrote in, uh, starting with chapter six. Number one, I had a feeling I would be traveling in air conditioned comfort in the not too distant future. Racists, white supremacists, deceive us into equating comfort with progress and freedom the train car is a metaphor for the confinement of the global system of racism white supremacy number two i chose delta uh delta whatever it is delta sigma delta uh walk led nasty oh they fed her nasty worms and all that as a member of one of the large one of the large African-American fraternities, the verbal and physical abuse that takes place during initiations, pledging, I think they call it hazing, 
is troubling. Victims abusing other victims, I guess, is to be expected. It's difficult to see how it develops. Uh-oh. Brotherhood or sisterhood. Someone does say about that calling me brother. I'm all right. Number three, NAACP, Orangeburg, uh, the fear of losing funding letting you know who is in charge indeed supreme number four thurman's new young wife the main difference is she was white or at least whiter than i was whiteness is binary either you are or are not and again this is not biology this is just race soldiers decide you is or you ain't real simple white by law ian honey lopez in the archives uh, let's see. Number five, the picture of Thurman standing on his head in his underwear. What a repulsive vision. That picture is in the uh, biography that I read from uh, Old Strom. Uh, if you want to see, I guess you could just look, Google it if you're interested. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Number six, Harry Truman, Civil Rights Division, Governor Thurman. Uh, he became an outright racist. I'm going to need a definition of outright racist. So is she saying he was just a racist before that is just not outright? Question mark. He was raping a 15-year-old black child that worked in his house. You do not get maximum racist aggression. It doesn't get more racist than that. $500 envelopes, you can stack them up to the ceiling. Uh, let's see get to some of my notes for this section Uh, let's see so we picked up at the very beginning of chapter 6 I'm actually going back to chapter 5 just at the end because it was so much I switched the color of my highlights man she says uh, man she said I think talking about Strom Thurmond I think he was confused because I was his whether he wanted to claim me or not in his eyes I wasn't really bully a negro the whole issue seemed to make him uncomfortable and so smooth political statesman that he was he didn't address it this (laughs) the only people who are confused about racism are not white he is not confused he already said hey you're not going to Clemson you're not going to city up my alma mater put you over there at the state college with the negros he is not confused about that. You, Essie May, are confused. We are confused. She continues. She said she goes to visit her mother, Carrie. Oh, saddest book I've ever read. She didn't look well at all. She had been having kidney problems, she said, and seemed puffy and older and haggard. Medical apartheid. And again, I'm ha- if this is Strom Thurmond, if this is your favorite side piece, whole family, you can't get her to a doctor? She can't pick up the phone and hey, I'm not feeling well. Is it possible? You go, oh, sure. No problem. No problem. You've been my best side piece. I got you. Are you serious? That's being a gentleman. You want to that? That's a romance. What a disgrace. And then I'm going to talk about disgrace. She concluded that she hadn't, she confided that she hadn't heard from my father once during the entire year I had been at Orangeburg. I think he's forgotten me. What do you mean you produced a child with this person and you don't even check in? 
during the first year of school just kept does she need anything do you need anything nah the help uh, let's see She doesn't he have a duty to you only to look after you baby has he done that these little envelopes does that count he got you into a little nigger school Jesus uh, she said I could tell she was she was still carrying a torch for my father now I don't even know what that means she was raped by him as a child so I mean I don't even I don't know what that means she had a torch. I mean, do you you're saying that she has some sort of feelings for him or what have you? Or I need more details about that. What what did you see that led you to conclude that? Uh, she says the opportunities to continue their secret and forbidden romance had been extinguished. Like what? What? I shuddered at what South Carolina could do to my father and to me if it came out that he had a decades long love affair are you serious with his black maid this is a love affair with his 15 year old hired help child rape call things by their proper name and I don't think South Carolina this is anthropomorphizing I don't think it's that South Carolina would do anything it's individuals classified as white and I don't even think they they might do something to Essie May maybe but I mean again there's been so much of this it might just be something to casually joke about whatever again this was a very poorly kept secret so I think this might be greatly overstated greatly uh, let's see love had made her ha yeah we already have man <laughs> the saddest book I've ever read chapter 6 which is titled heart of Dixie why is that the cow's theme song uh, let's see the creature conference with the air condition I thought was great uh, the emulation of white even having Greeks Greek societies as they are called for what and then for what activities uh, at least I did appreciate she said that they wanted leaders uh, in Delta Sigma Theta uh, a charity work and tutoring in the community not merely giving parties like hey man let's skip all the hazing and just get to constructive activities uh, let's see all this having to walk to class and do the delta walk that's spastic and wasting time and then we're going to pretend to feed you like are you serious what is this for what is supposed to be the constructive benefit what's supposed to happen at the end of all of this I pretended to eat the worms and wasted time walking to class all goofy and now it took me a half hour to get in there what is this for be leery of anything that's a whole lot of time wasting and anything really that is not constructive like it can't be explained like what constructive purpose is it they can make it so that you got to write a paper on the Willie Earl lynching like hey we would have all kinds of really great you know resources to go back in and check to see what happened about this that would have been great you got to do you know a 10 page report on the Willie Earl case or pick there were so many lynchings <laughs> you know you got to do 10 page paper that'll be the initiation and you you got to source it out and everything will grade it and see if you're going to be the type of leader that we need like hey right direction I love it I love it uh, let's see uh, they would talk about the end of whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> chapter 5 she talked about Claflin University one of the HBCUs stop right there February 16, 2022, 
Claflin University received a bomb threat on Wednesday and officials told students to shelter in place. In an email sent to students, school officials asked students, faculty, and staff to immediately evacuate all academic and administrative buildings on campus. The following was included in the email. Immediately go to your room. Remain in your room with the doors locked until the all clear has been given. Check your residence hall group chats for specific information from staff. Classes will be virtual for the remainder of the day. Staff will be in contact about meals, delectable Negro. Students, school officials also ask that anyone who didn't live on campus leave immediately. Now, I mean, this is 2022, 19, not 1947. Orangeburg, South Carolina, progress. Number two, she mentioned the dude that she kicked to the curb. Matthew Perry wasn't, you know, cool enough or what have you. Who is Matthew Perry? <laughs> this is from the South Carolina Hall of Fame website. <laughs> Matthew J. Perry, born in 1921, served in the U.S. Army from 1942 to 1946. Uh, received his law degree from South Carolina State College. Uh, the work soon so civil rights work soon consumed his professional time and led his appointment to the South Carolina NAACP as its chief counsel in 1957 Perry strategically selected cases to attack the state's scheme of racial segregation in Cummings versus the city of Charleston Perry successfully challenged Charleston's public golf course segregation Perry also prevailed in cases involving segregation of state parks, hospital waiting rooms, state colleges and universities and public schools. Perry's representation of civil rights marchers arrested at the state house led to the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision in Edwards versus South Carolina, considered by many scholars to be one of the most important First Amendment cases in modern American history in 1976. President Gerald Ford nominated Perry on the recommendation of Senator Strom Thurmond to the U.S. Court of Military Appeals, making the marking the first time a black man from the Deep South had been nominated to the federal bench. And it goes on. But I mean, wow, what a dude to kick to the curb. I guess his voice was amazing. Not just some lame. I can only say like, man, I have enjoyed this book a lot more than the last book for a lot of reasons. But one, I feel like I have learned a lot more. I said I am way too ignorant about all kinds of things, including Judge Matthew J. Perry. I have learned a lot in reading this book, and we've read a little more than half of it. Jumping back to the book now. Uh, as for the NAACP, which Matthew, as you said, was involved in intimately. Uh, any bad name that they could throw in it, she said it was like being uh, subversive, Yankee, communist, any bad thing whites could throw at it. They reacted to the NAACP the way blacks react to the Ku Klux Klan. False. Talk about those metaphors all the time. So the way that black people have had to respond to the Ku Klux Klan, sometimes they have had to pick up literally what they could carry in their arms and run for their life. That's how black people have had to respond to the Ku Klux Klan at times. I don't think white people have ever, ever responded to the NAACP by having to pack up and flee their residence immediately and never look back. Other times, black people have had to get firearms to defend themselves from the Klan. 
I don't think white people have ever had to respond by getting guns to defend themselves from NAACP terrorism. I could go on for quite a bit. White people have responded to the NAACP by killing members. Remember Medgar Evers? They talked about him in the help. I don't think white people regularly, excuse me, black people, I don't think our standard has been Hmm, we will go and assassinate the key clan members. I think Richard Williams did talk about going and beating up a few in black and white the way I see it. We read that too. It's a number of ways like that comparison is just false in every way imaginable. Other times, white people went and got NAACP members fired, made sure that they lost their house. Remember what that's what they did to Rosa Parks. I don't think black people have done that to uh, white clan members find out where they worked at able to call up and get them fired got the bank to call in their loan on their house that sort of thing I'm not aware of that happening certainly not on a wide scale that was standard operating procedure for white clan members for years how they responded to NAACP members I could keep going but really false equivalency lots of confusion uh, let's see she said Mm-mm-mm. he didn't act when they met again he didn't ask about her mother who cares she said which I found unusual if not rude what are you talking about <laughs> you're thinking like this is some sort of family or what have you that's not what this is I wanted to tell him how badly he was hurting her by not being in touch, but I didn't. I had no idea what might have gone wrong between them, aside from the obvious futility of the relationship. Even that word, like, really, this is tragic arrangement. Child rape. Uh, I believe you've been eating better, Essie May, he noted. You look thinner. Not you look lovely, but you look thinner, which meant that before, as I suspected, he thought I was fat. I was relieved that boys were noticing me now. If they weren't, I might have been devastated. I might. um, It's the saddest book I have ever read. Um, (laughs) Father Hunger, Janetta Rose Barris. She talked about that. That is so important for so many reasons. And she even talked about that on the last visit. She met with him when they were meeting in New York. She got ginger ale. He didn't drink any of that, drinking more water and all the rest of it. They don't go out for a healthy meal. He leaves and she she gets food. That's many of us. We cope with the stress of white supremacy, racism, eating too much, eating not enough, eating a lot of unhealthy things, being underweight, overweight, just unhealthy with food all the way around. And that has horrible ramifications for our health. But then every child every daughter they want the approval of their father that's biology that's DNA that's being a human even her race soldier but they say that I don't care the worst the most abusive parent that you could think of their offspring they still have a connection they would want that approval and everything else so of course like devastating having him thinking oh I'm just you know some fat person that's how he think and particularly having she thinks he's so attractive and having all these other oh he's so fit masculine handsome good looking and oh I'm not white and 
Oh no, he thinks I'm fat. He doesn't think I'm attractive. Oh no. Saddest book I've ever read. Um, they say that the person that got blamed in this rumor was Lizzie Mae Thompson, who happened to be the whitest girl on campus. Like, I don't know if they just mean she was really pale or I would have liked one more sentence maybe there to explain that. Uh, she talks about being all heartbroken. I read that previously. Gene Crouch, who they said he had been grooming apparently when she was 15. That age, something about that, because didn't they say Carrie Butler, she was 15 when she got pregnant? What? <laughs> Disgrace, man. They still got a statue up. None of this is like, this is not information that nobody unearthed until 2022. His statue is still erect, pun intended, in South Carolina, as is Ben Tillman. Uh, 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 uh. She was working as a governor's assistant. Like, that's total grooming. That's Jeffrey Epstein. Look, look at that, and you see the pattern of deviant behavior, like where uh, Carrie Butler she's working for me and she's 15 she's underage and in a subservient position I do the same thing with Gene Crouch who he eventually married I groom her I come in now at this point like I'm in my 40s mm, see her at the high school oh, this is a cute one yeah I like these little young teens I love that mm -hmm. why don't you get somebody this age appropriate you know find someone that I like these teens mmm and this continued because he I told you 66 he marries a 22 year old now what age did they meet been hanging out at the middle school waiting for her she says today it would be sexual harassment it would be statutory rape call things by their proper name harassment that's like if I'm you know whistling wolf whistle what they say Emmett Till that's sexual harassment no 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 this would be statutory rape and in fact, I think if it's 15, like, mm, I think they put the statutory on it. If he would be in his 40s and she's 16, I think that's statutory. Now, 16 is not even age of consent. That's like, whoo, I have to go look at the legal statutes. But that's a whole nother ball game right there. Like, I think that I mean, that's that is greatly minimizing this in a legal context to just say that that's sexual harassment. Now, like, nah, buddy. Uh, let's see. She wanted to tell the world about her uh, secret, but they didn't have a student psychologist, psychiatrist, she said, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, third generation physician, general and child psychiatrist. Jesus Lord, she needed Dr. Welsing in her life. She said, I was beside myself with pain. I said, it is the saddest book I have ever read I couldn't believe my father hadn't called me even the use of that word this is not your father this is just the man who raped your mother when she was a child and got her pregnant I mean this is not how a father behaves like at no point in the book has he been engaged in fatherly behavior um, oh you an exponent again confusion is lethal you do not understand what it means to be a negro you're a negro explain something <laughs> you don't understand negro i'm a white man 
explain what I'm doing to you. I want to go out here and rake me a 15-year-old white woman. That's what I do. Explain something to you. She said, obviously, he was too ashamed. Are you serious? Say that again. At 66, he married a 22-year-old. And this is like 20 years later. I don't know if she gets to that in the story. I hope she does. Does this sound like a white man who is ashamed of how he's going to be seen in public? He was a U.S. senator at 66 when he married a 22-year-old white woman. Does this sound like a white man who... What do they think of me? Ooh. Come on, man. Confusion is lethal. She said, too bad the groom's daughter couldn't have been one of them. She's talking about at the wedding. It didn't matter. That was one invitation that I would have refused. This is one like, <laughs> you don't understand. What do you mean? Some nigger is not coming to our wedding. What are you even talking about? You're not, this is not your family. You're not the groom's daughter, the D word. Saddest book I've ever read. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the outright racist. You know, you got to break that down for me. Um, the band playing Dixie theme song for the cows forever Strom Thurmond defended segregation laws again I'm just with the language the same thing I said to uh, Professor Hawkins this is not segregation this is white supremacy laws this is not about so called separation get your penis out of that black child if this is about so called segregation that's not what this is about this is about white supremacy this is just our specific laws codes for the way we want to practice white supremacy racism which is never about so called separation Sally Hemings um, and the, the purity protection and purity of the white and negro like are you serious again this is not biological but are you serious get your penis out of that black child purity so called uh, she says, what was my stepmother? Again, she's using all of these, this language as though these are like her relatives. <laughs> like I told Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn, he said at the Clemson Institute, they have a picture of Strom Thurmond's family. Family portrait, as they call it. And then to the side, they got Miss Essie May. Uh, yeah I can leave it there Whew. I've learned so much with this book it is amazing and we're a little over halfway through so much more to read I'm so glad we have a narrator so I could free up my hands uh, if you have additional thoughts and what have you just jot them down we even did overtime and we should be back uh, next week hope folks are getting something constructive man if you are a South Carolina resident you should own this book it should be mandatory and I think this would be a book if you have children that want to learn about racism whew, this would be one I'd say they could read it. They're a high school student or what have you oh yeah, they could read this book. You know your child's reading level or what have you but I mean it's not it's not a whole lot of big words. This is not like uh, the man in the high castle. This is not really complicated. I think typical high school student if they're on a normal high school reading level, they could read and understand this book and 
it might even give them a chance to look up some of this. Who is Hattie McDaniel? What now? What did she win? I don't, I don't know what that is. Who is this Adolf Hitler? I don't know. What is she talking about? Who is this Strom Thurmond? I don't know what they're talking about. Who is Willie Earl? I don't know what that is. Who is that? <laughs> Bravo. If that's a, something that they can do and take up some time as opposed to whatever TV and Netflix and Hulu they would be doing, let me go find out who Willie Earl was. Let me go see who Zachariah Walker was. Oh, wow. This ha- Oh, okay. Who is Strom Thurmond? Oh, okay. 66 and 22. Wow. 15. Wow. Sounds like Jeffrey Epstein. Hmm. Yes. Yes. We'll be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. What does it mean to be white? Jesus, Lord. That's all over this book. Every page. What does it mean to be white? Jay Strom Thurmond right there. Lying and raping black people. Lying and raping black people. (laughs) Reading more important than watching television. Uh, If you're out and about, sobriety would be best, really, regardless. Uh, But if you are out and about, you want to keep in mind this sort of violence is widespread. Uh, If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. Uh, This is no time for random confrontations with folks who may be armed. They may have an armed entourage. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on your cell phone. We need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.